Uh, I'm gonna, before we do that, I'm gonna call roll. I guess we'll call the meeting to order and I'm gonna call roll to establish a quorum. So uh, I'm gonna read the, this is just the order you are on the city's website. So uh, Thomas Howe. Here. Thomas Allen. Here. Shannon Reed. Here. Rebecca Buford. Sarah Waters. Here. Christina Gentry. Oh, hello, here. Hi, Christina. Erica Zimmerman. Here. Dana Ortiz. Here. Shannon Owry. Here. Ron Gacious. Here. Edith Guffey. Please. Uh, Monte Sokup. And is Tr Trent, is he a new? Yep. Okay. Here. You're not you're not on the website yet, Trent. So <laughs> okay, so I think Trent's I've been on the uh, three or four times. So sorry about that. The LHBA entry. Thank you. Thanks for stepping up, Trent. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Welcome aboard. You, I'm glad you could make the retreat because you'll today you'll learn a lot. Probably we're going to go over a lot of the stuff we've done, and it'll be a good orientation. So well, I'm um, looking forward. To so we have a quorum, and at that point, I'm going to turn it over to Leah to read our public statement about the meeting. We'll go from there. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good morning, everyone. I have a few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you're participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This will allow the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you're participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And with that, I'll turn the meeting back over to Mr. Sokup. There we go. Okay, so it's Monty Sokup, uh, Chair, also uh, Justice Matters Representative. Um, so the next item is to approve the April 11th minutes. So I would entertain a motion to approve the minutes. I've read the minutes and, and uh, submit that we should pass them as submitted. Second, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Okay, so we have a motion and a second. Is there any discussion? All right, seeing none, I'm going to call roll. Same order as last time. And uh, Thomas Howe. I vote yes. Thomas Allen. Yes. Shannon Reed. Yes. Sarah Waters. Yes. Christina Gentry. Yes. Erica Zimmerman. Yes. Dana Ortiz. Yes. Shannon Ari. Yes. Ron Gacious. Yes. Monty Sokup. Yes. Trent Santee. Yes. Okay, motion passes 11-0. A, a point of order, if I might, Trent, I, I don't okay. think you were there. You should probably um, pass on that. You should probably abstain from the vote. 
Okay, then I abstain. Okay, so motion passes 10 4 1 abstention. All right, so we're on to the second uh, item, which is our regular business. Uh, we're welcoming Trent <laughs> as the uh, Lawrence uh, Home Builders Association representative. We kind of already did that. So welcome aboard. Um, we have in our received the first quarter reports from the Affordable Housing Trust Fund recipients, 2022 quarter one reports. Uh, Leah, is there something from the staff that we have on that? Uh, the quarter one reports are attached to the agenda for the AHABS review. And if anybody has any questions, comments, or feedback, I'm happy to take those. Um, I didn't plan on presenting them necessarily, okay. just having them available for folks to review. So okay. um, it, all of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund recipients um, are required to submit quarterly reports, and this is quarter one of 2022. And it just summarizes their activities or progress and how many folks they've served uh, so far this year with 2022 funds. Okay, great. Any comments on that? From Okay, we're gonna move on to the third item, member oath of office. The all members of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board will need to sign a member oath of office. We had originally planned on um, doing that in person when we were planning on meeting in person today. And um, at this point, since I can't collect those wet signatures, um, I will get with um, the office and determine if they need to be mailed or if we can send those electronically. So those will be forthcoming. Okay, so we should just be expecting something via email or regular mail. Okay, anybody have any questions on that? This is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. Can you please clarify what that is? I don't believe we've ever done that before. So understanding a little better what the ask is, I think would, is important. Um, Jeff, do you mind providing some background if you have it? Morning, Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services. Yes, Kansas State statute requires that anyone serving the city as an advisory board or at a different level that they have to sign an oath of office. The states you won't do any, you know, violate the Constitution and follow the laws, and they're governable to the board. And so, as part of that, we have to get everybody to sign one of those. So it, it's it's something we're it's new. It's kind of developed there. It hasn't been done in practice in the past, but it is a state statute requirement that we're following. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so I guess that moves us on to our retreat items, which is uh, item B on the agenda. Mr. So, Chair. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, I just want to make sure that it looks like we skipped public comment. So I just wanted to make sure that oh. there's nobody in City Hall for public comment. I don't see anybody on Zoom. There's no one in City Hall for public comment. Okay. I don't know how I missed that, but I did. So, okay. So, no one at public comment. So, uh, we'll skip, we'll move to the retreat. And I think, Leah, you were going to share your screen. Yes, give me just a moment. 
Okay. Okay, are you all seeing the first title slide without notes? Yes. Yes. Okay. Perfect. All right. So, uh, everybody, I think everybody had an opportunity to see the PowerPoint. Um, we've made some few minor tweaks in the last few days, but uh, I don't think anything that'll throw anybody for a loop. Uh, today, we're gonna talk about our existing affordable housing goals and strategies. Uh, so we're gonna talk about our past year, past short-term goals, kind of how we've done against those, uh, what, we've, what we've accomplished and some of the techniques we've used. And we're gonna look at our, uh, at the city's strategic planning goals. Uh, as you remember, the uh, city manager, Craig, presented uh, the strategic plan to us a couple meetings ago, and there's some things specific to housing that we thought would be good to cover. And then we're going to work on uh, updating those goals for the coming uh, few years, year to few years. Uh, then we have a lunch break, and then we'll discuss the NOFO cycles and kind of determine, uh, we're going to talk about meeting structure and that's about it. So that's kind of what the day looks like. If you'll flip the next slide, we'll get started. If anybody has any questions, certainly interrupt me at any time. Mr. Chair. Yeah. Um, so we have a new member on it and, and I think that acronyms are challenging for people who are not, who, who aren't keyed in. Sure. And so if you say NOFO, we all know what that means. But my preference in any of this is that we don't use acronyms with the possibility of if there's somebody from the public or if there is a new member that we don't start with confusion instead of having clarity. So just a point of. Sure, we can, uh, I'll do my best <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, so our mission, just to bring everybody back, uh, is recommend that we make recommendations to the commission on ways that uh, Lawrence can have access to safe, quality, affordable housing and supportive services necessary to maintain independent living in, with dignity. Uh, so that's always a good thing to come back to. So our, go to the next one. <laughs> if you flip to the next slide. Um, it looks like Dana had her hand up. Oh, okay. I can, I, you're, you're going to have to speak up because I can't with this, uh, presentation. I can't see Dana's about half the size of a dime over here on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Dana Ortiz, family promise of Lawrence. I just wanted to respond to something Thomas asked about with the acronyms and such in the toolbox mm -hmm. is a very useful, um, acronym listing and what it means. So uh, I refer to it frequently myself. So, uh, it's just a useful tool to point out is available for us all. Thanks Dana. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to the next slide then. 
Okay, so we have these uh, one, two, three, four, five basically short-term goals we set up three or four years ago to kind of help us measure where we are and what we wanted to accomplish. So the plan today is to kind of go through each one and this this sheet is going to highlight the one we're going to talk about, the specific goal, kind of where we are. And then we're going to, after this, we're going to look at the strategies we've used for each one. And then we can talk about whether or not, uh, you know, this was a good goal, bad goal. Uh, we need to update the goal or whatever. So narrowing the rental gap for non-student uh, renters earning less than 25000 annually. Um, we had a goal of a creating 100 units, we've created 56 and we have 107 funded. So we're, you know, we're, I would say that we're, we've moved the needle on this. Uh, maybe we underestimated, you know, what we could accomplish. So if you'll flip to the next slide. So these are the strategies for that goal that we developed last time. So the ones with the check marks are the ones that we used. Um, so I can talk a little bit about some of these. Consider passing a city ordinance that makes source of income a protected class. So we pass this on. I think it's to the Human Resources Committee. Is I I may have that not quite right. Uh, uh, Human Relations Commission. Human Relations Committee. So we did make a recommendation to them and uh, did enough research to get that moving forward. And I believe they are working on that. So. Uh, Second one is encourage public-private partnerships uh, with the land trust. And uh, again, we have been doing that. Uh, and I think that's going fairly well. Um, and then the last one is use the trust funds to secure properties where federal subsidies are set to expire. We have not really uh, looked at in any meaningful way that I'm aware of. So, um, I guess at that point, I would open that up to anybody that has comment on or suggestions or thoughts about this first goal. This is uh, Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Um, and I see at least Dana with her hand up too, just as a, um, and Christina's hand, I just saw it go up. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to ask if staff, um, Leah or Jeff could provide a, a quick update, if any update exists about the progress of the source of income. Um, you know, and then we've kind of we've circled back around to it or asked about it periodically since we did um, kind of pass that work along to the HRC. And I'm just curious where that stands and um, if there's anything further that we can do to support moving that forward, because I think it's a really important policy recommendation that I do not want Ahab to lose track of since it originated with us. And I think it has the ability to have pretty high impact. Um, so I'd just like a progress report if anybody can give one. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, the last time they discussed it, there was a subcommittee that was working on reviewing other communities with similar ordinance and drafting language uh, for a potential ordinance. Um, I don't believe that it's moved uh, further than that, but I will follow up with Dr. Muhammad, the staff liaison, and if there are any additional updates that I'm not aware of, I'll 
um, with the AHAPNA with the June meeting. But that's where it stood at, at their last meeting, to my knowledge. Thank you, Leah. Uh, Christina? Yes, uh, Christina Gentry, um, member who has or has currently or, or uh, has previously received housing um, subsidies or assistance. Uh, yeah, thank you. I really kind of wanted to jump on exactly what was said earlier. Um, kind of wanted an update and maybe maybe a possibility of a presentation given by the Human Relations Committee. I know um, Commission, sorry, Human Relations, HRC, talk about acronyms, right? Human Relations Commission. Uh, to maybe give us an update, maybe have a presentation. I do know there's some, some emails that have been going back and forth. There's some very concerned um, community members who really want to be part of that process as well and add any information that could be provided. So really just kind of wanted to make sure that we're still considering that um, and still following up on on making the um, uh, the first objective here that we have really kind of don't lose sight of it. So I just wanted to just reiterate that. Thank you, Christina. Um, Leah, can you, uh, can we check and to see if the, uh, the commission has uh, enough information to provide us an update, and if they, you know, can, they could maybe come and at one of our follow-up meetings here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to follow up, and if there's any updates or progress that um, you know they could present on, I'm, I I will certainly request that. Okay. And um, just for everyone's background information, there is a. Live Well um, subcommittee or work group that's also working on this issue. And so um, to Christina's point, if there are community members that would like to, you know, give feedback or input, um, that's a space that meets ongoing. There's a Live Well Sexual Violence Prevention um, Housing subcommittee that's been meeting to work on it. And that includes, you know, city, county, um, nonprofit, private folks, and um, and just residents interested in, you know, stakeholders. Um, so um, that is an opportunity for anybody to get involved and give feedback as well. Um, but I appreciate you voicing that, Christina, and I will find out what I can and circle back. Okay. Thank you, Leah. Smonty soak up chair. Uh, Dana Ortiz. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, along the same lines, um, I want to reiterate at Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence representative, how critical this source of income with vouchers is for, for households that are served by Family Promise next to uh, needing more affordable housing units on the ground. I would say this is this is probably my second highest priority, and and it certainly is a is an obstacle that we're working with households, with our neighbors, with our with folks in our community on on a daily basis, multiple multiple households. So if something like this were to be passed, it would have an enormous impact on housing in our community. Thank you. This is Leah Roseland. I, yeah, I just wanted to add that um, 
it, it seems like this is becoming more of a critical issue um, at a um, at a built for zero meeting. Um, uh, I believe that it was a case manager that had announced that um, some of the vouchers were needing to be returned and maybe uh, Shannon Aurey can speak more on that, but that um, there were folks that had been you know, holding vouchers, looking for places to accept the vouchers, and um, that that um, as a result of not being able to find housing, that accepted vouchers, those vouchers had to be returned. Yeah. So um, this is Shannon Aury, the Housing Authority. So you know, um, all pretty much all the HUD vouchers will have a lease up time limit. Um, the Housing Authority, we, we routinely extend that limit if people ask, but we are seeing longer and longer times. And um, because of, you know, the, the work that the community has been doing through the rapid rehousing vouchers and the EHV vouchers, we also are working with a, with a population that maybe have that are harder to house and harder to find a landlord to accept them, either because of prior evictions, criminal action, uh, lack of income. There's a whole slew of reasons why a landlord uh, will not accept them. And so, you know, that voucher is only as good as a landlord who will accept it. Um, and so we, we definitely have been seeing that. Um, so for EHVs to, to um, get an automatic um, additional increment, we had to be leased up. So the Housing Authority got 31 EHV vouchers last summer in June. We had to be 95% um, leased up by about May 1st. Um, we were not as a community leased up to that. So we did not get another allocation of those vouchers because we did not reach that 95% lease up rate. And some of that had to do, probably not all of it, but some of that had to do, and, and they were all issued, but two um, by the housing authority, but some of it had to do with the complete inability to find a unit that would accept the voucher. The, I will, I will say the good news on the other side is that the Housing Authority was eligible for an additional 10 uh, mainstream vouchers, which are for non-elderly disabled. Um, and so we will at least be getting those in the community, but we did miss the opportunity because we had difficulty um, leasing the EHV vouchers. And Leah, if I didn't get to everything you wanted me to, send me a follow-up. Shannon, this is Shannon, <clears throat> Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. I just wanted to follow up real quick on that. Is that the first time that's happened in your tenure or recent house, local housing authority history where we haven't reached that 95% lease up and, it, and the consequence was not getting more vouchers? Um, so EHVs are really, a, Shannon Allery Housing Authority, EHVs are a real special kind of voucher. Um, we don't normally find that situation where they have triggers for additional vouchers. Um, as a matter of fact, mainstream, this is, this is another example. Usually we will get a NOFO and we apply and when we get that allocation, then we have certain times that we have to lease up. 
Um, but we don't usually have this automatic uh, eligibility for more vouchers if we meet certain hurdles. So that was really new. And it, honestly, it wasn't that was not identified by HUD until very late in the process. Um, and so that was, you know, I, I, I think sometime in April, I sent an email out to all the partners going, we've got to get to 95% and we're not there. Everybody, you know, <laughs> circle the wagons. But it's, uh, but, you know, sort of the point is, it's impossible if we can't find a, a unit. So, so the whole situation is unique. What I will say is that uh, so far we haven't lost, we have never lost vouchers um, uh, as the agency. And generally speaking, because we have historically had a very high lease up, we also tend to get subsequent, I mean, we usually have to apply for them. They're not usually, usually just automatically renewed, you know, extended. Um, that's a that's a unique thing sort of post-COVID was a lot of the money that HUD is, has from that and that they're trying to get out to actually house people. But normally speaking, we have a very good lease up um, and, and we are generally very successful when we apply for additional vouchers. It's just very rare that we have that opportunity and we've never lost a voucher out of out of this community. We have the ability, I mean, we have the uh, situation where we could even lose some of the EHVs we have if we don't have people leased up by September of 2023. And so one of the things we really have to pay attention to going forward is making sure we support these families um, and that we can keep them housed. Because if I have a voucher that's not being utilized come September of 2023, it reverts back to HUD and we will not have it in our community. Got it. Thanks, Shannon. Uh, one more, this is Shannon Reed again. <clears throat> uh, Follow-up question is, is it fair to say that, I mean, you, you mentioned this being a unique situation um, kind of all around. Uh, have you seen, I guess, a loss of landlords and property owners, um, folks that previously accepted vouchers and have stopped doing so in, in recent years. I understand recruitment of new landlords is also a challenge, but wondering if you've actually sort of seen a loss in, in a, the list. Yes, we've had, um, we, we've had um, certain very big uh, apartment complexes let us know that they will no longer accept a Section 8 voucher. Um, and then we certainly have seen, um, and so so from those big landlords, yes, we've seen that. We've had one, one trailer park indicate they no longer want to accept vouchers. Um, and then we have also um, seen, uh, given the housing that some landlords are, are deciding this is the time to sell a rental housing because of the value of the housing. And so that's its own particular little situation where now it's moving maybe from a rental market to a home ownership market. And I will say on that is that everybody on here probably is aware we need both of those things, and, but it's still sort of a robbing Peter to pay Paul situation um, with that. Thank you, Shannon. I think Christina has her hand up. 
Well, I, I recognize also, this is Christina Gentry, that Erica Zimmerman had her hand up before mine. Mine was really a follow-up question oh. for Shannon, um, but we can come back to that and Erica can have her time. Go ahead, Erica. Erica Zimmerman, Lawrence Habitat. Thank you, Christina. Mine is actually addressing the second uh, strategy, so go for it, Christina. Button. Okay, there we go. I'll get the Zoom thing right. Okay, um, my question is Christina Gentry. Um, I'll just say member at large. Um, I have a large title uh, behind this name, but I, I wanted to just kind of follow up with Shannon Ori. Um, approximately how long does a person have um, with their voucher in order to um, use that voucher to um, gain housing um, for so for an individual approximately how long does that person have with the voucher in hand to go and search for a landlord go and search for a homeowner uh, search for someone to um, accept the voucher before they cut off time where that voucher is no longer um, can be used um, so maybe my question is more of approximately how long does a person have to look for a home who has a voucher, who is able to pay rent, um, who's been approved, um, how long is that voucher given before it's no longer uh, can be used by that individual? Yeah, this is Shannon Nowry, Housing Authority. The The initial period is 60 days and then any, any um, voucher holder can get an extension to a 120 days, so an additional 60 days. And then we have the ability for reasonable accommodation situations or the, the or the difficulty in leasing up to, to extend it further than that. Um, and generally speaking, we will go out to 180 days. So that's kind of the basic uh, time frame. Thank you, Shannon. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, Erica, go ahead. This is Erica Zimmerman, Lawrence Habitat. I just wondered if we were gonna have an opportunity or if, if this was the opportunity, um, just addressing the public partner, excuse me, public-private partnerships. I know we uh, are moving forward on that, but I wonder if we might be able to discuss some tangible activities behind that strategy. I don't know if this is the opportunity to do that or if there's another place today to do that. And if um, the board would be interested in discussing any of those tangible opportunities, we've talked a couple different times about um, our application process and um, is there an opportunity to do meetings with our applications? Are there is there an opportunity to get feedback from maybe Home Builders Association on any barriers to applying um, for those private developers or those partnerships. So I just wondered if there would be some other tangible activities we could discuss behind that strategy or if the board was interested in discussing something like that. Uh, so <laughs> Erica, I guess it's Monty soak up chair. I think the answer is Yes, there's a time later. What I was kind of hoping to do with reviewing these was not to get too far into the weeds, but to identify the items that we want to come back to and continue to explore for the coming years. So there's going to be a time after this review where we're going to talk about what do we want to do? What do we want to alter change for next year? So I'm, I'm also taking notes here so that we can, I can capture some of that. So certainly if you want to, uh, if there are things that you want to update us on uh that's 
would be perfectly appropriate here. And then we can also follow up uh, later. We don't have to solve the issue uh, of what the goal for the coming year is. But uh, so certainly I'm gonna turn it back over to you if you wanna talk a little bit. Uh, Erica Zimmerman's Lawrence Habitat. I just, um, yeah, I get what I was just trying to get to was I think we're moving forward on this piece. I don't have any, a ton of updates or information to add. I just, I think we're moving forward. I'd like to just see us move the needle even further. So I'll save my other comments for some tangible ideas for later. Okay, Monty, so good chair. Thank you, Erica. I <laughs> I agree. I think we'll have there'll be a lot a good opportunity to talk about that. Um, also, in uh, we may discuss the matrix a little bit, and you know how we prioritize. You know, if you know if we have private partners, is that going to you know provide you a positive you know mark in the matrix? So I'm going to move on to goal number two at this point. And uh, so we can get through this. A great discussion, but if we flip the. Okay, goal number two low and moderate income renters who want to become owners uh, have more options for purchasing affordable units. We uh, set a goal of 100 affordable units, uh, completed 11, have 27 funded. So. You know, to me, I would say that we are um, a little behind the curve on this. I know these are harder to create uh, because often they take more resources per unit. Um, so, but I'm just, you know, we're a little behind the what we would hope, hope, hope to be. So if we could flip to the next slide, we'll look at the strategies that we've implemented. Um, Uh, it, it, one of the strategies was to expand the current uh, assistance program, which uh, I don't know that we, that may have occurred, but it didn't necessarily come from this uh, this group. Uh, fund preservation and rehabilitation of small modest homes through grants. As you'll recall, we funded several, uh, I think in every fund round of funding, we have funded some rehabilitation projects. Uh, and then consider relaxing development requirements as such as parking, open space setbacks. Um, and we haven't been successful at that, although we did push forward to the city or the planning commission and or city commission uh, a plan to relax some of those things. And essentially what happened is, um, I, in my opinion, I guess by the time they got to the planning and city commission, they were so watered down that the impact was minimal and, uh, they decided not to accept those recommendations. So that may be something we could think about taking a second run at, uh, and try to be more creative. So, uh, with that, I want to open it up to people that have the, anybody that wants to comment or would like us to see us focus on some specific thing for the next uh, Mr. future. Yeah, Ron. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative, a quick item on your last comment, and then I want to speak to goal two more broadly. But in, in regards to that, you know, maybe we should come back and look a second time 
uh, development requirements, we were encouraged by both the city, by uh, a majority of city commissioners to do exactly that. And I, I was of the impression that they had actually made an assignment to city staff to facilitate that. Is Does the staff have an understanding that that is an assignment? Does, does city staff consider that an assignment, Leah? Is that still on the list anywhere of something to be done sometime in the future? Or is it entirely dependent upon AHAB to generate a new list of initiatives? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. So I, if I could, Jeff, I'm going to pass it over to you to um, give a little bit of an update regarding the Land Development Code update. Uh, um, excuse me, Leah, before you do that, could I make my broader statement about goal two? Sure. Before you digress into the particulars on that. My, my broader statement about goal two is I think we've woefully underperformed. And I think the opportunity to do something in this area more significant is going to be on the policy side as opposed to on the funding side. Um, I mentioned a couple of meetings ago um, possibility of uh, changing our policy so that every uh, property owner would have the ability to build a duplex on their property by right. And I, you know, it, you know, doing that immediately doubles the number of home ownership units that are available to be built in the city of Lawrence. And as a policy issue, I'd like to see us add some of those kinds of more aggressive, more macro impactful um, changes to the marketplace that we can recommend that will increase the opportunity for affordable ownership, home ownership units. All right, back to item three. Mr. Chair, Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. To, to Ron's point on that one, those, those broader policy discussion questions are what we're going to have with the Land Development Code consultant about the way the code can respond and be better and, and work in those lines there. And affordable housing was identified as one of the key priorities and focus of that plan when we went out for the RFP in that discussion. So I think we're going to have some very good, very broad, holistic conversations about the code and what that will do and what what has not been doing what we've asked of it and what we'd like it to do in the future. So I think those are all forthcoming and good conversations. The quick update on that one is the city commission has uh, authorized the city manager to sign that contract. So the consultants are on board and we're working through some of those initial meetings to kind of start those discussions and, and hopefully get out very soon on this one. And just to remind the board that as part of that contract, it is to have this process begun and wrapped up within 24 months of the execution of the contract. So we expect it to be a very quick and very uh, broad conversation we have with the community. So this is Monty Stokup, Chair. Hold on, Ron. Uh, oh, go ahead, Ron. Go ahead. The, the and, and the important and the most important item for Ahab to remember is that the city manager told us we didn't have to wait for the conclusion of that process to bring forward policy recommendations that we thought would generate more opportunities for affordable housing. So don't let what we just heard from staff 
cause us to sit on our butts for two years and wait for the outcomes of that update. Monty Sokup Chair, thank you, Ron. I I agree with that, and um, <laughs> was going to make some a similar comment that if there are things that are that we can do that are relatively simple, specifically in the code, and not difficult to change and overarching that and increase affordable housing, then we should be moving forward on those kind of things. And I'm going to give you one example of that that I think we should seriously consider and that is you know currently the code only allows by right duplexes on lots that are i, I believe 15,000 square feet or larger yet we were able to pass uh, an amendment that allowed us to put an a uh, essentially an, a double density adu on a lot down to 7,000 square feet i don't know how we it, it seems logical to me that if we can put two houses on a 7,000 square foot lot, we ought to be able to put one duplex by right. So that I think that would be an example of a simple change that can be made easily and we don't have to wait two years to be able to have that implemented. So I think there are things, uh, and that was one of the things I was gonna suggest we maybe take a look at um, as part of this goal and upcoming goal. So, um, I, does anyone else have anything there want to comment on this? Okay. This is Leah Roseland, the yeah, affordable housing administrator. Just um, in case some of the affordable housing advisory board members haven't um, had a chance to look through the PowerPoint slides yet. Um, at the right before we break for lunch, there's kind of just an open-ended slide, um, and that's intended to be an opportunity for um, making recommendations for the consultants, but also just sort of starting a bucket list of these sorts of things that we can then get all of the brainstorming and ideas out and then prioritize and then tackle from there. Thank you, Leah. Oh, Dana, go ahead. Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence. Very quickly, I really concur with Ron on this statement. Not waiting, being much, we can be much more proactive. We can be noisy. We were given permission and encouragement to do so. And we have to. I mean, this is the, this is such a critical issue in our community around the whole US. We have a chance to really be advocates for this um, and advise and keep 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 saying it over and over and over again. So I'd love to see us be much more proactive on our advocacy. Thank you. And I would second that sentiment. Thank you, everybody. I was just taking notes <laughs> for my, to bring back up. So um, at this time, we had a couple people uh, join, uh, public, public people join the meeting, and they missed the early opportunity for public comments. So before we go to goal three, I think I'd like to uh, provide uh, these couple people opportunity for public comment. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Leah to uh, facilitate that quickly. 
this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, Sarah, are you wanting? Oh, I see Steve Ozark has his hand up first. I'd rather speak after Sarah, but I'm Steve Ozark, and I'm just speaking as a concerned citizen and longtime advocate of all the work that you guys are doing that we're doing around town to get things right. Um, again, I'm just speaking for me, but I feel like we missed a big opportunity with the land parcels that the city brought up some meetings ago. Um, to put it kind of bluntly, it seemed like low hanging fruit. I mean, things like last meeting, I was chatting about the police uh, facility and that that's been shot down to be affordable housing. But I'd have to ask, as Dana said, wh why would we accept that as the answer? In other words, I think we have a ton of parks here. Uh, we don't need a park at the police station. What a great location that would be for safe, affordable housing. Uh, Dad Perry Park, there, uh, and again, I'm not the brains in the room, but I, I, I ask you guys to consider parcels of land that we can push for politically that are gonna have a little blowback, you know? I know there's gonna be those against us, but, but it seems like a really important area that I just wanna speak to as a concerned citizen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Sarah, have a get Sarah queued up. There we go. Yes. Uh, good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. Can you hear me clearly enough? Okay, very good. Uh, most of you know me, if not all of you, but my name is Sarah Sarah Taliaferro. And uh, Monty Sukup and I co-chair the Justice Matters Affordable Housing Action Committee. We do research and advocacy on best practices for cities with uh, affordable housing trust funds and work within the community to support the efforts of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. I think all of you have that awareness, but I realize that I just launch in kind of assuming that you know the framing or what <laughs> my context. Um, and I ought to mention, because Steve Ozark is a part of it, that Justice Matters also has a separate homelessness action committee that's focusing on the built for zero efforts to end chronic homelessness. I also am uh, in the Masters of Public Administration program in the School of Public Affairs and Administration at the University of Kansas. My focus is policy, innovation, organizational change, and community engagement as a big piece of that. And my work is in the affordable housing policy field. So that gives you my context. My comments this morning are simply my observations at this time. And um, since they echo points of your discussions today and over past meetings, please just uh, take them as, if nothing else, um, an affirmation. I would like to make the point that the city of Lawrence, we as a community really need a strategic, comprehensive, affordable housing plan for Lawrence. And listening to your comments today just reinforces that idea to me. And that, that 
strategic planning process requires community engagement. There are a couple reasons for this. The first is that affordable housing and homelessness issues are complex problems, as you well know. There are these different perspectives of for market and private housing development and, and nonprofit or housing first perspectives and all of you there's good representation of those different perspectives sitting in in this conversation right now and you are doing some pretty amazing collaborative work so we've got that component there are a lot of conversations going on around the community and looking at economic development as it relates to affordable housing but we somehow need to tie all of these things together in the past you've mentioned that you don't necessarily know or are tracking on all of the different things that are being developed or policies that are being developed. Um, it, it's everything from land use to um, funding to, and, and you're aware of all this, I'm preaching to the choir at the moment. But at any rate, uh, it, it, any community that successfully makes inroads in its affordable housing uh, issues has to have a portfolio of policies and it has to be strategically planned so that you can implement them and adjust them as you go forward so that there it's an adaptive set of of policy tools the other reason is that you will come up for renewal and want your community to understand what the goals are and understand what your plan is and support it um, I have just a couple quick comments and then I'm done. Uh, uh, just some preliminary research that we are doing going back to communities with exemplary affordable housing trust funds. Uh, we're finding things that echo a lot of the things you're discussing. So um, they, have, they have identified um, substantive sources of funding so that they have the power to leverage the different goals. Um, in Nashville, Tennessee, for example, uh, they it, it's general funds, but in Polk County, Iowa, they raise charitable dollars to fund supportive services, and that's how they do the supportive services part. And then the trust fund dollars from the state and local tax dollars, which are from the county, uh, to the tune of a 1.5 million annually, and then 1.5 million from the state. Those are only used for funding new and rehabilitated affordable housing units in the county. So there's an example of you know one of the issues that you've raised. Um, I, I'll stop there because I think I've already talked over my time, but um, I, I, I'll just close by saying, I think the community looks to you to be the the driving force and I support you in your comments just now. Uh, I think that's going to require another strategic planning session and, and um, you know, maybe in the fall and maybe bringing in an outside facilitator, you know, perhaps looking at somebody like Mid-America Regional Council who has government services and facilitates conversations. But this is a weighty problem and I would encourage you to do yourselves a favor in finding and seeking the supports 
to be as strategic as possible with all of your expertise in the room and all of your experience and insight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. I, I don't know what you're saying about my facilitating uh, <laughs> prowess, but uh, I would welcome a outside facilitator uh, for funk events like this. Uh, certainly recognize my shortcoming there. So um, I wanted to note that Rebecca has uh, joined us as has Edith Guffey, Rebecca Buford and Edith Guffey. I see she's on. Uh, so just want to make sure everybody and add them to the role uh, as well. So, okay. Is there anyone else for open uh, public comment? Anybody else in the room or that's joined us? Okay, great. Thank you. We'll close that. And then I think we'll move uh, on to goal three. If uh, Leah, you can pull back the pull up the <laughs> PowerPoint again. Need the next. There you go. Okay, so this is a uh, low to moderate income persons with accessibility needs. Uh, were they able to get the improvements uh, to find accessible housing? Uh, we had 125 uh, units annually, which is 125. And uh, at this point, we've completed 39 and have 49 funded. Um, you know, I would say we're a little behind on this. I think uh, we have funded some kind of modifications, I believe, in nearly every round, if not every round. And at the last time we uh, had funding, we did ask if they had capacity to increase the number that they were doing. And um, based on a, basically the answer was they did not have capacity to increase the number that they were doing, but they felt like they were meeting uh, the need of the community reasonably well. So if we go to the next slide and look at the strategies, so we'll talk from there. Um, so the two things that we have done is use the trust fund to uh, do those modifications on uh, qualified housing units or rentals and Independence Inc. is one of those. Um, I know that there are other agencies that have done some work in this area as well. Um, we have not used the third uh, bullet point to my knowledge of providing incentives uh, to landlords essentially to incentivize modifying units or having these kind of units in their stock. So with that, I'm going to open this up for any comments or any questions people have. All right, I'm not seeing a lot of, is there anything, uh, is anybody concerned with what we're doing here? I think, you know, we set that goal at, at 25 a year, maybe not knowing what our capacity was or what the need was. As I recall, when we set these goals last time, 
we were really unsure about the numbers. So maybe uh, maybe we're doing okay here. Anybody in the uh, not-for-profit provider sector think we have any major issue in this area? Okay, not seeing any hands. Okay, so let's move on to the next uh, goal then. Okay, low and moderate income residents and unstable housing situations have more permanent affordability and supportive housing options. Uh, we intended to provide 45 rental vouchers annually. And um, currently we've, that's 225 in five years and we've currently funded 701. Uh, so I would say in this area arena, we've maybe overachieved, although realizing that the last two years we've been COVID and uh, we have shifted, you know, because of the, the great need uh, intentionally funded more vouchers than maybe we were, we originally thought we were going to. So, uh, go ahead, Dana. Dana's got her hand up. I think it also shows clearly the enormous need in our community for this very simple, but complicated way to keep households housed and help them in this manner. So this I'm, I'm pleased to see this number, but it also says how large the need is in our community. It's a good point, Dana. Thank you. Uh, go ahead, Edith. Uh, yes, actually, this goes back to the previous goal and actually throughout the process uh, and all of our goals. I always worry about um, how many people actually know. Um, we always think everybody knows about the services, um, but I wonder if we're reaching um, the people who really need these services because they may not be in the usual pipeline. So I wonder how we're communicating and who we're communicating with. And someone could tell me, oh, we're using every every mode necessary or every mode we have, and I just don't know. So it's that curiosity. And that's a question I think that we can explore in all of these goals. So uh, this is Shannon Nowry, um, the Housing Authority. Um, after the presentations we got at the last meeting, I reached out to Leah to ask if I could make a presentation because a lot of these vouchers, it's, it's not a one size fits all. We have a lot of different kinds of vouchers and a lot of, um, and a, a, and a lot of different routes in, and, you know, it dawns on me as Edith says that that we might not have fully educated on all the possibilities of how you can access a voucher and, and what partners and what mechanisms we use to identify uh, community members who could benefit from a voucher and, and make sure they get through the process. So I'm hoping sometime this summer uh, that we can make that presentation. Um, certainly involves other folks on this call like Family Promise, et cetera, um, uh, because they are some of the routes uh, that people find um, vouchers through. 
Thank you, Shannon. I think Christina Gentry has a comment. Yes, this is Christina Gentry, a member at large. Um, I just wanted to go back to our, our last uh, goal. I didn't get a chance. I was looking through my notes to refer back to the Independence Inc. presentation. And, and I mean, this is just reiterates our, our earlier discussion about um, income as a protected class. And I know I keep going back to that probably just because that really is an issue that um, uh, I'm very passionate about, uh, especially with this board and other boards that I attend. Um, but I was reading back into the notes and Daniel Brown gave a presentation on uh, the Independence Inc. for which we understood that they were asking for um, some of the um, application or the applying for some of the tax dollars that we were able to, um, you know, go over and, and look at the applications that they were, um, they had submitted. So, excuse me, I'm just kind of looking at these notes because it, I wrote down here um, th that housing trust funds would go to um, ensured people with disabilities live with dignity and were left in place where people were, um, were moving. So, I remember writing down that the trailer homes were the number ones homes that were modified with Independence Inc. and with the, the funding that they were asking for. Um, and that these trailer homes were also in dire need of repair. Um, and then I also hear Shannon Ori talk about trailer homes, not ex some of them not accepting vouchers um, anymore. So I just wanted to bring that point up that um, with our people who are living with accessible um, issues or with disabilities, um, trailer homes are one of the the, the real means of, of home and life that they have that takes them um, and makes living in place a little bit easier. So the, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we knew that the trailer homes um, and the apartments, the things that we're talking about too, really come into play when we're talking about income as a secured and as a protected class because uh, we're really fighting for the people who are have are living in margins and who really do absolutely uh, need to have these accessible opportunities. So I just kind of want to reiterate that as I'm going back into my notes and what Daniel Brown was, was sharing with us during his presentation. Um, so if we could do more in that space and have more information about how the accessible um, um, opportunities are, are then being maybe transferred onto maybe other living opportunities, other homes, or maybe, maybe even prioritizing homes or maybe even, you know, prioritizing trailer homes and maybe making a real um, push to um, consider um, trailers and other apartments to really, really consider um, making vouchers as a priority for their, their um, apartment livers or dwellers as well. Um, I digress. I think I'm talking and thinking about so many different things, but the issue at hand is that it's absolutely necessary for us to push these issues forward. And I'm unhappy we're having this discussion. Thank you, Christina. Uh, Dana, you were. Yeah, to follow up a little bit on Edith's comment, Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence, I think we can do a much better job of getting our message out there and our collaborations and the availability of this. And I'm I'm speaking right now strictly from a family promise perspective. Numerous times we'll hear somebody had only just heard about us, or for example, we we took on the 
family side of the winter emergency shelter by the city that the city ran this winter. And six of the seven families that we were able to help had not ever heard of Family Promise before. So, and we're pretty well known in the community for working with families who are in a situation of a housing crisis. So that tells me that Family Promise needs to do a better job of being out in the community. And I certainly think with all these goals, an element of that exists. We've, we've talked about it before, Edith, you're a proponent of pushing this and I appreciate it. Are we getting the message out of our funding availabilities when we post them for to, to um, people that previously haven't applied? Are we, are we marketing this opportunity? Um, we can tell a better story and it kind of relates back to what we were talking in goals one and two about not being afraid to be a bit more noisy and advocate. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Smonte Sokup, Chair. Any other comments on this before we move over? I'm going to actually move down to the strategies for this. We're still be on here, so. Dana, do you re-raise your hand or is that still for? Okay, all right. Okay. Um, so our strategies were to build new partnerships between not-for-profit housing developers. Oh. What? Here we go. Uh, to provide more housing, uh, explore using housing trust funds to assist faith-based organizations, and then support local and regional efforts in landlord outreach and recruitment uh, and reducing fair market rent barriers. So. Um, here, any we've made attempts at all of those things. Not sure if we've been successful or not on all of that, but any thoughts? Yeah, go ahead, Ron. Uh, Ron Gacious, um, Chamber Representative. On the second strategy, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just I'm just reading it and I'm looking at it, and the use of the word develop doesn't sound like the right word here in the context of rental vouchers is the better verb provide rather than develop. And Dana, maybe you're the better one to provide, to, to give us some response to that. Yeah, I develop connotes to me more on kind of the capital investment side. But yeah, and I think too narrow. And I think provide is actually broader and more inclusive. Dana, you and I, well, you know my background on all of these issues. I'm here advocating for a broader context for this second strategy, sure. recognizing and what you folks are doing. I think expanding the word would be helpful there because some congregations of faith may have old parsonages that they're not using that could be uh, had some have some refurbishing done and be used as affordable housing. That's a possibility. And uh, another discussion that's happened uh, numerous times this past six months or so with Rebecca Buford and Erica Zimmerman and I is to speaking to communities of faith with Justice Matters in their network about property that they have 
um, that could be used to build affordable housing units. And so that would really be development kind of things and, there. And, too. and there is at least one church here in town that's pretty, pretty far along in that discussion. There's there's actually a number of them that are very interested in pursuing this. So I do think that we could spend some time on this and look at ways to make it successful for them. Um, the, the, there, there's, there is land, there is availability, and there is interest. So we're already way ahead of the game on this if we can but, figure but out that, a way to make it happen. But that probably doesn't come under a strategy that's talking about rental vouchers. True. Well, Although they could be, they could be rented through the use of vouchers, and that goes back to what Shannon was speaking of: the lack of, the lack of landlords that would be willing to take a voucher. This is uh, Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. I just wanted to hop in on this because I, um, similarly thinking about this strategy in this place, I'm wondering, and maybe it's just more uh, in the in the past than since in my tenure on Ahab. But what are some tangible examples of how um, we've utilized? I guess partnerships or relationships with faith-based organizations around these vouchers specifically. I'm just, I'm not recalling anything specific in the last two cycles, but it may just be escaping me. So I'm just curious what a tangible example is because to Dana's point and the discussion just now, I do know there's a lot of local conversations going on around development, actual development and building um, and assessing of properties owned by faith-based organizations, but yeah, just curious for some background about the relation to vouchers and why the strategy is here specifically. No, okay, maybe other people have a similar question then. Um, okay, well, we can move on from it. I don't wanna hold us up too much uh, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. <laughs> it's a good point that you all bring up. Um, although we have done work and make progress on um, working with faith-based organizations to develop affordable housing, it's not necessarily um, within this goal. So perhaps this strategy should be better moved to um, a different goal. Okay, uh, Monty Sokup Chair, any other comments on, on that? Okay, let's move on to goal five. Uh, low and moderate income res residents living in housing in poor condition have improvements made. Uh, our goal was to have 70 units modified annually or 350. We've completed about 143, 160 funded. Uh, so we're, again, we're a little behind the game on that as far as the numbers go. So let's uh, switch over to the strategies. Uh, fund preservation and rehabilitation of small, modest homes. Uh, I think we've funded some of those in every uh, round of funding that we've had. Uh, buying blighted and vacant properties. And I think there's been a little bit of that, not a lot of that. I think, uh, as I recall, Habitat has purchased some uh, some houses to renovate. So 
uh, explore using trust funds to expand homeowner rehab loan programs. I don't know that we've followed up on that. Uh, explore housing trust funds to expand weatherization. Um, and I think maybe we haven't followed up on that partly because of a C, uh, I'm going to use an acronym because I don't know the uh, the name CDBG um, has fills some of that uh, weatherization spot uh, with other funding sources and identify leverage other funding uh, to achieve multiple objectives. So, uh, any thoughts on on that? Go ahead, Shannon. This is Shannon Douglas County Commission. Yeah, I, so CDBG is community development block grant. Um, and I am curious if staff can provide any um, insight into it, how and where the weatherization program is being utilized and how it's accessed um, it, with the city of Lawrence specifically. Um, and curious. <clears throat> I think it is an important issue that I, I would like to see us talk about more, but I also don't want to duplicate conversations if there's momentum and progress of work being done on that goal. I would just like us to know about it because it certainly contributes to the affordability of homes. This is Danny Walters. Um, I can I can speak to that. So um, we have with our group that works with the community development block grant, there is a total of uh, three of us on staff and we have actually been down the position that runs that type of program for the last two and a half years. <laughs> so um, we just hired somebody and they just started last week and we are getting them up to speed and one of their first assignments is going to be to um, to look at that weatherization program because I think the way that we were running it is not effective. Um, we were we were literally just hey we'll do weather stripping of doors we'll do storm windows we'll do attic insulation, and there was no what benefit is actually happening for these homeowners. Where are the efficiencies being found? Where are we where are we saving them money? And uh, so we want to look at expanding that program. Um, you know, looking at doing energy audits for it, not just looking at those three elements that we have been doing, but, you know, what what else can we do in there to help these families? So that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, beforehand, I would say we were doing between, you know, 13 and, and 17 a year with that. Um, I, I would say that will probably go down to probably three or four homes a year, just based on the funding that we have available if we want to really do it the right way. So um, that's where we're at. That was a really long-winded explanation, and I apologize. No, but, no that was uh, great. And we, we will be, um, I know that we've been approached by the, um, the group that works with uh, sustainability, and they have some recommendations for the weatherization program, what they would like to see. And uh, we can certainly, as soon as, as we are in the process of planning that and getting input about it from the community, we can bring it to this group too. And, and just kind of let you guys hear what we're, what we're thinking and get some, get some weigh in from you on, on what you would like to see with it and how it intertwines with what your goals are. Thanks, Danny. That helps provide some context. And I think 
I wonder, uh, I guess my last clarifying question is, um, are those all historically like self-referrals, you know, people that are going through the, to the city website and applying for that? Or are you seeing them through social service agencies? Because I'm also thinking about, I'm pretty sure ECAN has a weatherization program. Um, and I'm not sure if there are other agencies um, locally that I'm unaware of, but just curious how you were seeing those. Yeah, this is coming This is Danny Walters. So, oddly enough, the the most um, applications that we got were from the little line that used to be, um, or that I think probably still are on the water bills. That's where a lot of people would see it. Like we would run that because we would run the program once a year, and we would start advertising it on. Um, in that water bill, we would do a press release. Typically, um, it would be on channel twenty five, like one of those scrolling. Um, when we used to have channel 25, we, that's another real big aspect of it that we're looking at is, is that, that public notification piece of that, because it was very, very rare that we would get referrals from agencies. Um, we do try to work with ECAN if we get some, if we get somebody that's inquiring about it, that we're not able to assist, but I think a better collaboration with them too. And, um, being able to really kind of route these applications like, okay, this is a really good fit for our program. This is probably a better fit for, for ECANS program and going that way. So that is part of the, the overall assessment that we're doing on it. Thank you, Danny. I, I've got a follow-up question to that. I mean, if, you know, these are existing programs, um, what, what do you think, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board can do to to push this out to make it more effective. I mean, I I don't you know. I just wonder what what we could be doing. I guess. I this is Danny Walters. I I believe that 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 will that will come to uh, to rise up with a discussion. And, and looking at, you know, how do other communities get this word out? How do the, you know, who are the agencies seen that could utilize this program? What's the best venue for them to get the information? Um, and then, you know, kind of enlisting, enlisting our groups like Ahab to help out with that. So it's just gonna depend on how that process goes. I, I don't know off the top of my head right now what, mm -hmm. what this group will be able to do to help, but I guarantee that there is a place for assistance here. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so one other, it's Monty Soak up chair, one other follow-up question on that. As I recall, if somebody has, you know, let's say we, you know, your CDBG invests, I don't know, $30,000 in a home. Uh, as I recall, there is some lien or something that's put on the house uh, in order to not have those essentially have someone turn around and in six months sell their house and then they take walk away with that improvement cost and are all that capital gain. Um, is that is that true? And then I want a follow up question to that. This is Danny Walters. So we have several types of programs. Um, our comprehensive rehabilitation program, which I think is what you're probably talking about, mm -hmm. we do actually place a mortgage on the person's property. Um, it is, so the, the program is only available to those that are owner occupants. And after seven years, that amount is forgiven at 50%. 
some loans people pay back $50 a month. Mm-hmm. Some there's no payment, but whatever the amount due is, is payable when they cease to become owner occupant of the home. Okay. So it's, it's, it's in most cases, it'll be forgiven at 50% over seven years. Yeah. So. Okay. I'm going to, I just having uh, talked to folks in Nashville, um, they have a similar program and they actually, uh, get a first right of offer mm-hmm. on these homes. So when they do go for sale, the trust fund has an opportunity to purchase. So I think that's, I'm going to, uh, it's just, a, it's just an offer. It doesn't, you know, it's just something that's recorded and, uh, mm-hmm. doesn't mean you get, you have a right, but you have mm-hmm. certainly have an opportunity. So, uh, i add that to my list of things, but, um, are there any yeah, other questions? This is Danny Walters. We can certainly look into to something like that. I mean, the, the the tricky part is that these are these are all market rate right. homes for the most part. So I we'd probably be priced out <laughs> in the very beginning, but to at least have the opportunity to look at it and see if there's if there's right. something and we can do to help bring that into into affordability would be great. Right. Certainly you wouldn't execute on everyone, but you would have the opportunity and it, it just gives us opportunity to be in some places that we might want to be in. So, okay. Any other questions on this, uh, this goal or these strategies? Uh, Mr. Chair, I, I just had one comment. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator, and I'm not sure if all of the AHAB members had a chance to review the quarterly reports, but um, there, um, one issue that was highlighted in the quarterly reports as it relates to this goal was also highlighted in the Kansas housing assessment that was done. And it's in regards to um, builders to do the work. Um, and I'm wondering if Ms. Zimmerman might want to elaborate on this, but um, one barrier that we're seeing in being able to do the modifications, even with funding and the clients um, you know, ready to go and programs ready to go is that um, uh, agencies are having a hard time finding um, um, contract uh, licensed contractors to do the work. Um, and we're seeing this as a real barrier in developing affordable housing as well, the lack of licensed contractors. Um, and so I'm wondering if Ms. Zimmerman or our new member Transcend team might want to elaborate on this. Um, and perhaps we could add that as a strategy as um, moving forward. Erica Zimmerman, Lawrence Habitat. Yeah, Leah, thanks for bringing that to attention. We have um, a number of houses on our wait lists for uh, just minor repairs of housing We've and major repairs as well, but we're having a difficult time finding contractors um, that are licensed. That's We keep coming up against that barrier of, we find a lot of people that are willing to help and want to help and volunteer to rehab, but um, they're not licensed. And so, and then just finding licensed contractors that have the skills um, that we need to be able to do those repairs is something that we've struggled with probably over the last um, 12 months. I mean, before COVID, we struggled with it a little bit. And then we just, in general, lost our general contractor. So we're in the process of looking for a general contractor as well to build housing. Um, so um, it's been a huge struggle and um, something that has kind of put a halt to a lot of the things that we uh, are doing currently. 
Mr. Chairman, a question for Erica. Yeah, go ahead, John. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Erica, what would it cost for you to add a full-time person on staff licensed to do this work? Um, so currently we have that budgeted at about $60,000. Thank you. But that's two contractors. I just want to clarify that would be a general contractor for building houses and a general contractor for doing repairs because those are two different skill sets. Um, and um, so we would need two of those positions full time. Thank you. Um, thanks everybody for having me. Uh, these are kind of just some general comments to respond to this stuff is that it's, it's just a, economies of scale. Like it's incredibly difficult to make any money doing little jobs. And so, uh, anyone that's going to take the time to get licensed and set up a business and do all that stuff is more than likely going to be building bigger projects. Um, I, I would almost say that at this point, if it has to be a licensed contractor to do the work, then we should probably look into getting uh, some kind of a handyman license or some kind of uh, maybe a class D license that applies to handyman or something that is more repair based and is essentially like you would have a maintenance tech at like an apartment building. Um, the, the biggest problem with that is going to be is that you're just going to have a very small work pool of people that are doing that because again, it goes back to if you can go to one job for two weeks instead of four or five different jobs a day, it, it's a, logistic, a logistical issue to, to complete that stuff. And so um, you, I think you're just going to keep running into that issue unless we can get contracted with, I mean, maybe it is, a, you're going to have to, you know, a larger company. I don't even know of, of anyone that would fit this spot, but I, I I mean, arguably a company that owns multiple apartment complexes that has a, a, a staff of maintenance men um, and try to contract directly with them because it just is it's really hard to fill as a single person. Smonty Sogup Chair. Thank you, Trent. That's a that's a really good you had a couple good suggestions there. Um, so there are, I mean, I know there are companies out there uh, that do this kind of work, whether or not it's a affordable way to go about doing that. I don't know. I don't know that, but uh, a couple of good things there. And I wrote down on our list of things to discuss the repair license. So a different kind of license that would allow uh, someone to do that kind of work might be helpful. So. Any other comments on uh, goal five strategies? Okay, so let's go to the next slide. This is really anything that we didn't cover that um, that we would want to cover maybe in future goals. I'm gonna list uh, things that I wrote down out of our previous conversation, then I'll turn it over to you, Ron. Um, Things that I wrote down that I think we're gonna we should emphasize is source of income, um, public private partnerships, including churches and other not for profit entities as well as for profit entities. Uh, the Erica, or uh, yeah, I think Erica brought that up. Um, 
exploring land acquisitions uh, in some greater detail and different ways of accomplishing that. Um, uh, let me see, uh, increased opportunities. Uh, this goes back to Ron's comment about uh, ability code, you know, I guess policy changes and uh, working on, uh, you know, current policy that can be changed and have an immediate impact as well as working long-term on the, uh, with the code rewrite. Uh, being active, uh, proactive on our advocacy and making people aware of what services are out there. Um, and then the uh, potential for uh, figuring out how to how to skin kind of the rehab projects with CDBG and other things to increase the number of uh, the number of people able to work on those and to get our numbers up on those rehabs and keeping people housed and giving the uh, efficiency. And finally, land banking uh, is another one I had written down here. So is there, are there other things, are there things that I missed in the conversation that people want to uh, make sure we include in, in, uh, in our goal, goal setting? Okay, so Ron, go ahead. Mr. Chairman, this is not an item that's previously been mentioned. So I mm -hmm. would prefer for, to discuss first any items that have already been mentioned that people want to discuss. And if there aren't any, I'd like to add an, uh, another policy suggestion or, uh, or oh, sure. an, an issue that I'd like to see us um, uh, investigate and possibly make a recommendation. And that's the entire area of manufactured housing. If you look at the toolkit that we've already prepared, we have mention of mobile homes in the toolkit. We have no mention whatsoever of manufactured housing. And right here in our own backyard, we've got, a, you know, a, a fast, smart entrepreneurial company called Built Smart that is very innovative in the manufactured housing space and are looking for opportunities to do more work here close to home and it's, it's my understanding uh, from visiting with them briefly that there are obstacles to doing that efficiently uh, in, in Lawrence now. And I'd like to understand better what those constraints might be and if there are reasonable improvements we could make in reducing those constraints or barriers so as to encourage the use of more manufactured housing um, uh, in our community. Okay, thank you, Ron. I think that's a great suggestion. I'll add that to the list here. Monty, yeah, this is Re Rebecca with Tenants to Homeowners. Um, just to let Ron and, and everyone know, we are working with Build Smart right now. Um, they have provided their ADU floor model unit for us to put on one of our vacant lots. So we're very excited to learn they're going to train us 
uh, tenants to homeowners, but it's it, we're going to open to the public. Anyone can join where we put the pieces together um, and really find a streamlined way to use their local manufactured housing, particularly kind of a smaller unit. Um, you know, we've looked at them many times, Ron. They're just very expensive. I mean, very, very expensive. So mm -hmm. the issue really is them coordinating with and working with us on a simple type of model that is less is is more affordable because it doesn't have all sorts of um, really specific, you know, it's not built custom um, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and kind of meets their coordinates in a way that it's efficient. Um, they are very energy efficient. So that is right along with our guidelines of being very energy efficient. But I'll give you an example. We spend $300 on a window and we order cut, we order very standard size windows because otherwise the custom orders right now in supply chain are six months out. Mm -hmm. So not only are custom windows double the cost if you don't order a standard size, but right now it is insane. Like you can't even get them <laughs> for, you know, in any sort of time frame that's reasonable. They're, you know, and I, again, I love, I'm working with Build Smart. We want to work with them, but their five windows for this ADU were bid at $6,000 for five windows. I, we were just blown away. I mean, that's just not what we, and, and we build with high U value windows. We don't build with cheap windows. We actually build with more energy efficient windows. So there's just some things that we really have to work with on using the right kind of materials where we can get that price point down because right now my affordable price points have doubled. Um, and, you know, so there's just a balance there mm -hmm. of, uh, and their customers I think could pay $6,000 for five windows, but that is not going to work for affordable housing. So we've got a, you know, I'm just trying to give some examples of the challenges there. Um, but that was their bit. I mean, the guy, the windows they work with, and they said they would be high, so they weren't like messing with us at all. Again, appreciate it if you guys are on the phone. I love Build Smart, and we're going to work these things out with them. But I just want to say that there's things like that where we've got to find the right mixture of elements um, to make that affordable, and then they've got a model that works for us, and we can build, and then gosh, we can we can make 30 of those and actually get some economy of scale like Trent was mentioning, right? Where we can say, we've got 20 lots and we're gonna use the density, affordable density bonus to build 40 units on those 20 lots. And we're gonna, we're gonna give them a bid for 40 units. What can they give us on that price point? And I think that's, so I'm very excited to work with them to learn about what we the efficiencies of model of modular housing and how we put those together um, and make them efficient and affordable. Um, and I, I think we're in process and we have a lot, a vacant lot to try this one. And then we're gonna try to add three more little houses on these two lots. So I should say two lots, use the density bonus and do a cottage community of four little houses that are modular. We're actually probably going to build one of them stick built so we can then actually compare energy efficiency of the exact same floor plan modular and stick built. 
So I will let you all know of when we're going to put that together, where we're doing that and what. So gosh, come on out and learn more about what can be done with with Build Smart. And we'll be talking a lot more about that and hopefully educating the community because I can't agree more with Ron. We have them right here. That's like a local resource that is very high-end energy efficiency building materials. All right, thank you, Rebecca. Go ahead. Sandy, uh, with the Lawrence Home Builders Association, just to follow up on that, some general knowledge of that is uh, you kind of, you pay a premium, like almost in any market, right? If, you, if you're if you in the, the least expensive thing or kind of in the middle, once you start getting up into the, the 85 percentile of any product, you start paying an ultra premium and you lose uh, your value. Like it's, it's, it might perform, you know, 10, 15% better, but it's 50% more. And so I think that's the big issue they're going to run into with BuildSmart specifically, not to pick on them, is that they're just building such a high quality product that they're, they're losing the premiums of the economies of scale. And so I think you're going to, to, to see that um, it's just going to be hard to keep the cost down in that situation. Um, the other thing that is some general building knowledge is it's usually cheaper to go up than out or down. And so mm -hmm. while that's cost effective, you start to, to limit who can use this property. We've talked a lot about uh, accessibility and, and disabilities and stuff. And so don't get me wrong, it's great. All right, it's cheaper to go up, let's build a tower, right? Well, next thing you know, you have one ex uh, accessible unit and nine units that have stairs or an elevator or some other cost prohibitive um, stuff that comes into there. So there's just, there's all these things that the second you, you try to take a step in this direction, well, you know, another variable comes in and causes you issues. So um, not that that's a, a solution, but just some more context. Monty Sokup Chair, I think also one thing we we should think about with Build Smart is thinking about doing something more like a row home where the intermediate walls are not their product, where you're just building the envelope with their product, but you're getting multiple units. So you have, you know, all those intermediate walls aren't overly expensive, but you get more units because of the. So those are things I think we need to, and obviously you guys are probably looking at those, uh, but. Um, Anyway, there's there's lots of ways around that and I totally get that whole window thing because they've worked with a window manufacturer to essentially build a custom window to fit their system. So they're kind of wrapped into that. So we're going to we're going to have some things to work around certainly. Uh but I think that's a great opportunity there with with them being local and having the desire to work with us. So All right. Uh, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, Ms. Govey has had her hand up. Who does? Oh, Edith. Okay, go, Edith. Yeah. Sorry. I, I missed you. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, Edith Govey, um, member at large. I just wanted to follow up, and we may not get to this today, uh, follow up on something that um, Sarah Talaferro spoke about um, on community comment, and that is um, I would love for there to be a uh, community-wide strategy on affordable housing. And I don't think we have one. You know, every time I have a, we have a meeting, I hear about something new that's great about affordable housing and initiative. And I wonder 
why don't we know about that? Maybe there could be a, a report. I don't know, but it seems to me that there ought to, this is so big in our community, that there ought to be a coordinated strategy for affordable housing. And you hear this same song from me about DEI, you hear it about from me about a lot of things in Lawrence, but this is one that uh, I hope we have the opportunity to explore um, and encourage a community-wide strategy um, on affordable housing. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, thank you, Edith, for your comment. Since it's been brought up again, I wanted to go ahead and say that our consolidated plan needs to be updated. And with those updates, we will be um, including a comprehensive strategic plan for affordable housing. It'll include a lot of community engagement and public input. That will definitely be a part of the process. I'm sorry for my dogs barking. <laughs> um, but we are looking, really looking forward to getting that kicked off this fall. It's something I'm really excited about and absolutely acknowledge we need for our community. Um, with that, we do have the community health plan that's countywide. And although that currently, you know, that's a collective community impact plan um, and currently does serve as an affordable housing community plan, um, there's an affordable housing plank of that plan. So yes, and um, I think that we have a collective impact plan that affordable housing providers are using to benchmark progress. And we know that we need something in addition to that. Thank you, Leah. It's Monty Sokup, Chair. I'm I'm glad to hear it's part of that plan. I will this group be, you know, actively engaged in the development of that housing strategic plan within the whatever comprehensive plan or whatever it was that uh, that falls in, or how are we engaged? How how can we be engaged? Um, well, honestly, Danny and I need to meet to talk about <laughs> um, the logistics of rolling out the planning process, but that is absolutely our intent. The AHAP will be um, integral to that process, absolutely. The logistics of it is still in the planning phases, but the AHAP will be integral to that process. This is Danny Walters. I would I would echo Leah's um, comments. We are right now trying to get through this current year's planning process. So um, this is the last year of the current five-year plan that we're on. So we will we will be picking up the planning process for the five-year consolidated plan fairly immediately after this one's through to HUD. So okay. Thank you, Danny. It's Monty Sokup Chair. So I I get that we're part of that plan. I I'm not Someone's going to have to convince me that we're going to dive deep enough into affordable housing within that plan that we are going to have some actionable guidance for this group uh, to really push forward and make an impact. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, I'm not sh sure that I'm satisfied with the answer just yet. 
Uh, so let's see where we go with that. But uh, we, need, I, I'm, I agree with, uh, and I wrote that down here: strategic plan for affordable housing. After Sarah spoke, uh, something to talk about, and uh, I, I feel like we kind of echo Edith's comments. I guess we we do we we visit these different things and these goals, but there's nothing that pulls all that together to tell me how we're moving the whole needle. Uh, in the right direction. So I'd love to see that, something comprehensive like that. Go ahead, Ron. And then I think Edith wants to talk. I, I was just going to add to both of your points that um, my sense of it is that the work that we're doing within our advisory board in order to be a fully comprehensive community plan somehow needs to be better integrated with what's going on with all other parts of the city. That, that's the way I'm interpreting kind of the, you know, that, that's, that's the key takeaway for me. And, and the frustration that I've had in the past, most of you have heard, is that when we recommend something, it goes off to other departments within the city and becomes modified before it even gets to the city commission. And, and you know, where, where was the opportunity for the city to hear the voice of the affordable housing community and the priorities that we represent as opposed to just the budget considerations or the planning considerations or the parks and recs considerations. Um, this, this becomes particularly important when we start talking about, are there any public lands that can be utilized for housing? I mean, the first three or four times we've had this conversation with representatives of the city, all I've heard so far is, gosh, you just not would you just would not believe how many reasons we have why you can't do that. That's been my takeaway. Uh, and, and it's like, well, no, guys, let's turn this around. The assignment is you need to help us find some public land to put affordable housing on it. That's the assignment. And and I, you know, how, how to your point, how do we integrate our priorities into what else is happening with the city so that we end up with a comprehensive strategic plan for affordable housing that represents the best interest of uh, our constituents? And, which is all of Lawrence. And and I don't think we've figured out the mechanics of doing that yet. Okay. Thank you, Ron. Go ahead, Edith. Uh, I'm with Ron. I don't want to be, uh, yeah, I do. I don't want to be, yeah, I do want to be pushy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't want to uh, be uh, an aside piece in whatever strategic planning piece happens. I want us to be uh, uh, front and center in this process of thinking about affordable housing and that we don't get folded in to whatever else is happening, that we are primary in the conversation. Uh, we may not be leading it, but that we aren't an add-on in whatever other group is doing it, that we are uh, key players in that conversation. Um, 
and we don't happen just to find out about it later on and we have a, you know, we're included somewhere along the way. I want us to be key players in the conversation. And uh, it's not just the city. If we're talking about a, uh, a community-wide conversation, it has to be a community-wide conversation. Uh, and I've not seen a community-wide conversation with whatever this other group is. Uh, if that's a community-wide conversation, then we haven't been in it. Okay. Thank you, Edith. Appreciate that. Um, uh, Mr. Chair, okay. if I may, just one minute. Jeff Craig Plain of all the I wanted to speak to that conversation that Edith noted there is that I think Ahab is heart and center of some of the things that are going on in the strategic plan with the city. And wait, my web browser won't load up here for me, but you know, in part of strong welcoming neighborhoods, there are three indicators in there that is really where Ahab drives that conversation has a lot of that goal. Mm -hmm. And so I would say is, you know, take a look at that document and take a look at that uh, city manager presented on that, because I think you are heart and center to a lot of those items that are in play there. The conversations that we're having as part of the, the strong welcoming neighborhoods group is what are the key activities and the key actions that need to be taken to really move those needles. And that's the kind of help that we were hoping to get and we're getting today from you all here is kind of helping us align that work and what are those conversations that need to have happen. And there's three really main indicators in there. One's about um, individuals experiencing homelessness, but also rental stress that's going on in the community and also the affordability of the units. And kind of to Trent's point there is the conversation we have about you know, growing out versus growing up in there with the cost of infrastructure that is also in strong welcoming neighborhoods. So I just want to point you all to that page because I think it's very vital to what you're talking about, but also to show you that you are really at the heart and center of a lot of those actions that we're working and taking. Uh, Trent Santee, Lawrence Home Builders. I'd like to just follow up on that. I think that part of the problem here is that it's not just an affordable housing problem. We have a housing problem in general. We have a growth problem in general. The city is at a point where our main growth pattern is to the west, but we've run into K-10 and the infrastructure is not in place to cross K-10 in our normal process. Our normal process is regular annexation. A property owner comes in, says, I want to annex my property, and, and they start the conversation. Um, the problem with the situation now is that there's no the infrastructure not being there, a single property owner of a normal size can't afford to put that infrastructure in. So there's essentially a stalemate, there's a stymie, like it would take a massive coordination between multiple property owners and multiple developments at once to facilitate the infrastructure that's needed. And without the, the normal growth and the normal supply chain moving along, it's putting more and more pressure on existing properties, existing homes and contractors. It's gonna get worse. It takes too long to develop land and lots and infrastructure to meet the current demand that we have. And then the contractors that we do have are going to leave because there's no work. Like there's just not anything readily available that is remotely affordable to the point where if you're not building a $600,000 home, you're not building. And if I could just tag just briefly onto that, we lost our last LHBA member of this 
for specifically that reason. Paul couldn't build here. He met, went to Kansas City where he could. And I'm, so, I mean, it, it touches this board as much as it touches the entire housing community. I'm personally going through the same experience. I was able to hopefully finalize securing some lots in Eudora, which is very close to here, but it's not Lawrence. It's not actually here. And in that I'm, I'll be lucky to get those and they're the very last ones there. And so it's like, I'm already looking at Kansas City and places farther away because there's the, the stuff that's available here is very niche. And so I guess if I need to summarize on top of that, I think that we need to look at city citywide, how do we continue normal growth? Because we don't want to overdo it but we have to do something and the way it's sitting right now is it's it's stalemated there's nothing it's there's very few things that are even in the process and they're not going to last they're not going to be ready anytime soon and then when they are ready they're not going to last very long thank you Trent. well thank you everybody go ahead uh, ron gaseous chamber representative Trent did a probably the best job I've heard of briefly describing the, the what he called the stymie of none of the property owners on the other side of K-10 are big enough to take on the infrastructure investment themselves. And I've been in the meetings where representatives of the developers have looked at the city representatives in the meetings and said, what can you do to help us? And everybody just blinks their eyes and that's the end of the conversation and then we go off wondering well how are we going to solve this problem and nobody's come up with a plan yet i've, I've had a couple of coffee dates lately where i've been talking to friends of mine that aren't following the affordable housing issue but when i mention housing they jump in right away and say what are you guys doing about the rapidly escalating val property value that I have to pay taxes on. Well, that's the secondary effect of not having any lots to build on is every home in the community is now more valuable because there's marketplace demand to live in Lawrence and there's no availability of new units. I mean, there are tiny little communities between us and Olathe that are building more units a year than we are. It's, it's a ridiculous situation, but we've got this stymie that, that, you know, folks all across our community ought to be concerned about this availability of lots issue because it's going to directly impact the valuation of their homes and the property taxes that they pay. Or if they're renter, renters, it will, it will um, uh, affect the value of the property they're living in and their landlords will eventually start passing those increases on. I, I, you know, this is probably the biggest issue that we could develop a long-term strategy around, but I don't know how you go fix it. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's got wheels turning in my head here. You know, it's like, you know, if the city developed, and I'm just talking about ideas, if the city were to develop, you know, infrastructure that it provided to certain sets of landowners, 
you know, could you get affordable housing in return as part of having provided that infrastructure? You know, okay, so we go, we build a sewer line across K-10 and all of a sudden we have five home, five property owners that now, you know, build $600,000 homes on, you know, 15, thousand square foot lots that has not helped our situation so what we have to do is figure out how do we help our how do we provide that opportunity to builders but also help our affordable housing uh situation so i think there's there's certainly a conversation there to be had and strategies and ideas to think about how to do that but um you know just the market has proven that if you provide the infrastructure or the infrastructure is there that you're not necessarily going to get affordable houses. So there has to be some kind of give and take in that process is all I'm trying to get out there. So certainly an important conversation we ought to be thinking about having. And maybe that's one of the policy things that we look at. Uh, to that end, oh, go ahead. To that end, <laughs> just one more thing. And then I, uh, to that end, I would, I would ask whether or not this board should have a representative sitting at the table on the code review process with the new consultant. If there's a group of people that are the steering committee for that effort, should this should somebody in affordable housing perspective be on that steering committee for that uh, code review? Uh, so I'm going to throw that out there. With that, I'm going to let Leah <laughs> uh, jump in. Mr. Chair, before Leah jumps in there, Jeff Craig, Planning Development Services, just wanted to call attention that when the City Commission authorized the resolution for the steering committee, they did place a seat for Ahab at that conversation. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I did not, I was not aware of that. One step in the right direction. Monty, maybe if you were the chair of this board, you would have been aware of it. Oh, wait, no, you weren't. Where's <laughs> the disconnect there? I mean, if there's a seat there, shouldn't the chair be aware of it? Shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't we know that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm glad there's a seat. That on was it. not for you. That was for Jeff. Right. No, if I there's some if there is some place in that process that meant that that communication did not happen, why? The city commission actually changed the resolution to include seats from different boards at their meeting last Tuesday. So it was not on the initial item board, but the city commission authorized additional places for both. They have the multimodal transportation commission and the sustainability advisory board as part of their change in the resolution. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Thanks, Jeff. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. So uh, um, actually the next slides in our PowerPoint, we were going to go over the city strategic plan housing goals, which align with the AHAB housing goals and have a discussion around that. But just uh, to just point, um, it, from my seat, I see that this affordable housing is an issue that's being discussed a lot within the city. Um, and we will, it sounds like just need to do a better job keeping members um, up to date on all the communication that's happening. Um, part of this was an intent to do so, but 
we are at a time boundary. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, additional slide that we won't get to was to have a discussion on how the AHAB wanted to provide feedback to the steering committee, to the consultants working on the land development code update. Um, because we are at a time boundary, we may table that for after lunch or for an upcoming AHAB meeting. But um, that was the direction that the intent of this conversation was to go to. Um, we're over 15 minutes breaking for lunch. And so I'm wondering um, if uh, the chair would like to go ahead and break and then just uh, come back at one o'clock as opposed to 1245 or what the board wishes to do. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Leah. Um, I would like to take a break. I would ask, do you think is 15 minutes enough for a break or do you need, do we need 30 minutes? Anybody? Have thoughts on that? 20. 20 minutes? Let's come back and let's come back in 20 minutes. So we're going to come back at 10 till 1. And we'll continue this conversation. Uh, we're going to modify a little bit because of time, what we were going to cover today. But um, thank you. We'll see you at 10 till 1. Mr. Chair, the room is ready when you are. Uh, Mr. Chair, I believe you might be on mute. I am on, I was on mute. Thank you, Jeff. We will uh, jump back in here. I think uh, in the slide deck, if you guys reviewed the slide deck before the meeting, we had some work on, or some kind of going over some of the strategic plan and some of the toolkit strategies um, and different things on that. And I think we covered most of that in our conversation. So in the, for the sake of time and getting accomplished today, what we want to do, I think what we'll do is um, we'll work on, uh, with the comments that were made today, we'll come back to the next meeting with some edits and revisions to the existing goals based on the conversation today and the strategies we've talked about. And then we can start there and kind of review those from there. So we have in, in, in more detail and uh, then kind of confirm where we want to go. So with that in mind, we're going to skip to after the lunch break to discuss the NOFO priorities and cycles. And, and those kind of things. Uh, so if Lee, if you want to uh, queue up the slides post lunch break. Okay, so Lee, I'm gonna turn this over to you. I think you were going to uh, cover this uh, NOFO priorities and cycles, if I recall correctly. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, so I was just going to uh, walk folks through the timeline. So I apologize, this is Lee Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, so I can hardly believe it, but it's already time to release the next or start preparing to release the next notice of funding opportunity. 
Um, so the acronyms here are the Affordable Housing Trust Fund Notice of Funding Opportunity Annual Timeline. Um, so last year when we were going through the timeline for 2021, the advisory board had discussed this being a standard ongoing just annual timeline for the NOFO release. Um, and according to that timeline, it would put us at the June meeting next month, we would review the draft NOFO documents um, based off the discussions that we have here today and what the advisory board decides today. In July, the city commission would offer its approval of those documents. Uh, the NOFO would be released this summer and July. Uh, we would have some opportunities for applicant info sessions. Um, with the applications due September 23rd. Um, and that uh, would put us on a timeline to where the um, city approval for funding and documents could all be signed theoretically before the new year. So that would put us in a good position to, uh, for the new funding cycle in 2023. Um, there are a couple of um, additions that I've made to this timeline to have the advisory board discuss. Um, the first is that the City of Lawrence bu budget resolution will not take place until September 6, 2022. And so what that means is that if we stick to this timeline that when the NOFO goes out, we won't have the overall pot um, firmed, firmed up about what, uh, how many trust funds we, we have to award for 2023. Um, so the NOFO could go out without that. Applicants could see past year awards for some benchmarks, but we wouldn't actually know the total pot of funding um, that the trust that the sales taxes brought in until September 6. Um, so that would still be in time for the award decisions. Um, a couple other things to note is that the the LIHTC, the low income housing tax credit applications are due. The initial applications are due May 6. Uh, in the 2022 timeline, and I am I'm assuming it'll be about the same for 2023 with the final applications due in January. And so the advisory board has discussed lining up our NOFO with um, the Kansas Housing uh, Resources Corporation. Um, so that's just something for your consideration. So um, Monty, I'm going to turn it back over to you for discussion and ultimately um, we'll just need an agreement on the timeline to move forward. Okay. Thank you, Leah, for that overview. Um, I guess I'm just going to open it up. Are there any concerns about the existing timeline or does anybody have any comments? Go ahead, Ron. You're on mute, Ron. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Um, <clears throat> These annualized calendars work great for the city. It allows staff to create a 12-month cycle, and it links up, or we can make it link up pretty well with the LIHTC uh, 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 application process to accommodate those developers. But, but I have always felt that it would be appropriate for us to have some small part of our resources that could be available whenever a great project landed in our laps, instead of us having to tell 
a, a prospective developer, builder, excuse me, I want to use the word builder, and, and instead of us having to tell a prospective builder, gosh, I'm sorry you're out of our cycle, it's going to be six months before we send out the next NOFO, and then, you know, 90 days after that, you'll find out whether you're going to get support or not. Um, <clears throat> I'm fine with this calendar generally, if if there's some support amongst other board members for keeping some small kind of reserve, even if it's only just you know a few months balance of uh, in the trust fund. The other observation that I wanted to make about this calendar it goes back to Edith Guffey's comment about are we doing enough to reach out to other stakeholders to new constituencies. And one of the constituencies that I think about, and I think others have mentioned also, uh, Christina, I think has mentioned, is, you know, we've, we've got our small set of established not-for-profit builders, developers, and, and they're, all on, they're all on this meeting. And they do a great job. They represent the status quo. We shouldn't reasonably expect that anybody that's not already part of the game is going to hear about a NOFO publicly released on July 20 and in six weeks get their act together out of the blue if they're not already a not-for-profit builder and get us an application due on time. You know, this this is where we need to do something extracurricular to this calendar that reaches out to other constituencies that might have an interest. And I'm thinking just very specifically of our BIPOC community, reaching out to our BIPOC community and, and asking, do we have folks that want to participate or organizations that want to participate in this process? It, is there any new talent we can bring to the game? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe if you're interested in working in this space, you go work for Rebecca or Erica or something. I don't know. Um, it, is that a real issue at all? It, is that a real manifestation of this issue where we need to be doing something extracurricular to what's normally done in the way of just a city release? You know, what, what else could or should be done to reach out to other constituencies to inform them of this process. This Monty Sokup Chair, thank you, Ron. I think that's it's interesting that you bring that up because there's two things come to mind. And I think every person on this committee has a responsibility to reach out to its community. I mean, we have Home Builders Association on here that I'll be reaching out to home builders. We have the realtor board. We have the, you know, chamber and the county. And there's just, you know, they should, we should all be personally reaching out to people. Um, and I would say that there are, you know, I've personally reached out to five different developers to try to convince them to, you know, make applications and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, so I think there's some of that going on behind the scenes that may not be visible from this committee, but there is some of that going on. I know Rebecca and Erica have also been in, involved in some of that reaching out to developers. So um, 
there's some of that going on. And I agree that the, you know, we gotta have, we probably have to have some kind of annual process, but the reality is we're also gonna get these projects once in a while, they're gonna come to this board or this whatever advisory board, I guess, uh, out of cycle. I mean, we anticipate having some in the coming months. So um, having a way to deal with that would, is also good. And I don't know, I don't know what that looks like, but uh, certainly having a way to deal with that is going to be important moving forward. Go ahead, Shannon. This is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. I, um, yeah, I appreciate your um, comments and response there, Monty, and think that um, it is important to point out that as, as has been pointed out a lot in recent meetings and again today, sort of all of the, the main nonprofit players that um, do affordable housing work in one way or another within the realm are represented here. And this is only one example of a place that they are regularly gathering. There's also lots of other um, places where social services are coordinating and working with local governments a lot. And the representatives that we have from the chamber, the Home Builders Association and Board of Realtors, I expect are the liaisons to make sure that this information, these calendar dates, questions about the process and application requirements um, and things to and relationships that can maybe be built between some of those um, association members and some of our nonprofit developers to go back to public private partnerships, which is a, a theme of conversation um, that that is part of Ahab's responsibility and perhaps part of um, Part of what can clarify that and for continuity in future years as there's turnover in seats is that it is more explicitly defined how each of the different seats on this board are helping liaison the information and create those bridges and do that sort of be a part of the marketing strategy, if you will, and the explicit outreach to the people that may not yet be in the know. Um, and I think that explicitly the folks that are participating in um, those private associations with a bunch of professionals that aren't in social services and that may not be typically in the know. Um, these meetings and the roles that we're playing in the community in between our monthly meetings um, are a very important piece of that. And I'll just also say that I agree that we, um, I would like to have more conversation about the out of cycle funding and how to create a um, I guess some uh, some structure around that and what is allowable. It sounds like it's, we just had an example of it come up recently um, and that was a great opportunity that none of us wanted to um, miss out on and we had some funds available for it. How do we ensure that that possibility exists for the sake of flexibility and not missing opportunities um, in the future? Okay, Shannon or Ori. Shannon Alry, Housing Authority. Um, <clears throat> I just want to um, uh, concur with Shannon Reed about we need a process um, because we've had several out of cycle requests and I will say that I've been in favor of them all and I've voted for them all, but I've also heard from applicant, particularly in the LIHTC, uh, 
realm, which is one year we had more applications than we had money. We would have liked to have fund all of them. And then six months later, we funded an out of cycle one for more um, after the ones who went through the normal process, their allocation was cut from their ask. And so I think if there is no process, we sort of open ourselves up to sort of a, you know, a allegation of, you know, encouraging people to ask out of cycle um, and or playing favorites and, and those type of things. Um, so I do think whatever, I, I agree, uh, life doesn't happen in a scheduled, you know, timeline um, and things come up, but I do think we better have a process to do that rather than um, just one off every time with no process. Um, so that's my thought on that. And then the second issue is we've brought up multiple times about trying to have a different matrix and a different timeline for capital programs versus services voucher type programs. And every year uh, that we've brought it up, what we heard is we're too late in the cycle to make that change. We've already issued the NOFO. And so I just want to re-raise that issue because, I mean, routinely you knock a bunch of the people out of, uh, off the, and either a set aside or a different type of thing because, um, you know, those are two very different things and, um, but they shouldn't be judged against each other. The, it's still my opinion, they shouldn't be judged against each other. <clears throat> this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, thank you all for bringing up the out of cycle application um, policy. It, um, when the last out of cycle tenants, the homeowners application went in front of the city commission, they did ask that if we continue to accept out of cycle applications, we have some sort of standard policy or procedure for that. Um, so that is going to be critical. We will have at least one out of cycle uh, funding application to look at at the June meeting. So those conversations continue to happen. Um, Last year, the AHAB decided not to have a set aside or break up pots of funding for social services or development, but that's certainly a conversation that you all can have now and make that decision for this year if you'd like to move in that direction. Um, some feedback that I got from the developer whose application we will likely be looking at in June was that having just an ongoing op open cycle without an annual calendar um, runs the risk of not having comparisons for the best projects and the awards may be, you know, awarded just as a first come first serve. And so that's something to take into consideration. Um, but it, ultimately it would be it, it, um, as a result of this conversation, if we can make a decision, if the board can make a decision about out of cycle mm -hmm. applications and the timeline. This is Monty. Mr. Chairman, uh, continued discussion. Okay. Uh, yeah, we can continue discussion. Um, I support all the Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative, 
Uh, I support all of the comments um, made about uh, if we're going to do out of cycle, uh, if we're going to consider out of cycle requests, we need to have an established process for that. I think that's spot on. Um, I, I uh, absolutely concur that we need a, a, a regular annual cycle also, and that needs to closely coordinate with the standard LIHTC application process so that we align with the Kansas applicants and give them the best opportunity to be successful. Um, and uh, I'm fine with having uh, a separate consideration of um, requests for vouchers from the request for uh, capital funding projects. I mean, that, that uh, requires us to make some determination to predetermine in advance of knowing what the final amount is that we have uh, available. It requires us to predetermine what that split should be percentage-wise or dollar-wise uh, if we're going to, if we're, at least I assume it, 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 it requires us to do that. But, but at, you know, at a minimum, the matrix that we use to evaluate these needs to better distinguish between the two classes of requests. And, you know, I, 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 you know, we really need help, I think, from the folks that are issuing the vouchers to tell us what are the right metrics to be looking at to uh, evaluate the request. Thank you, Ron. And, and, and then I have a, a, a question that's kind of for you just about when is the right time to have a discussion. Um, at, at what point do we talk about the issue of uh, whether or not trust fund dollars should be spent on uh, supportive services in the future? Yeah, thank you, Ron. So I think we got a couple different things going on here. Um, so I think we're generally in agreement that we need an annual timeline. So is there anyone that disagrees with this timeline or has any comment or is it okay to push this forward as our official timeline? And then we'll come back to the other issues. So, okay. Oh, okay. Shannon or Dana Ortiz. Yeah, thank you. Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence. <clears throat> as long as we had a process for out of calendar year rotation, I would be fine in voting and approving an annual rotation. But speaking to the things we discussed last uh, before lunch and the housing market and such, we've turned down, we have not applied for a couple different things because the cycle didn't match the need that was av the available opportunity. So we have to go out and find those funds from private donors and such and, and cannot apply to them for this. And this is for units on the ground. So I think we do have to, if we're going to be more proactive and we're going to be more <clears throat> advocacy for this, we also need to match our procedures to our voice and be more flexible with some sort of official procedure to take out of cycle applications. Thank you, Dana. Edith? I don't need to add anything on this. I'm good. Okay, thank you, Edith. Thomas Allen? 
Yeah, so one of the things I'm also wondering is um, if, if there's a way that we could, um, you know, I, I think during one of our last funding cycles, there was an issue of how much we should provide for services or housing vouchers. I'm also wondering if maybe there's a way we could start to tier some of these requests so that maybe they're um, sort of like if we don't use some of the funding for the out-of-cycle funds, that maybe we could backfill some of those requests with some of these different things that maybe we created a second tier for. Is that is that making sense? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Just throw it through. I don't know. I'm thinking of how you do that and still have funds available for out of cycle. I mean, you, so the one hard fast rule we have is we don't spend funds we don't have in the hand. So we right. can't spend funds that we're, you know, waiting to collect the taxes. So you either have to have a reserve. So there's, there's just some complexity around okay. how that occurs, but yes, it could be done. Anyone else? So what I've heard is we have support for the annual timeline, assuming that we can work with and come up with a out of cycle mechanism to deal with some of the out of cycle uh, requests. And then there's also a desire to have discussion around either how we evaluate services versus hard assets, or whether or not we set aside funds for each or whatever, or at least the minimum how we evaluate those. So I wasn't uh, voting on that. Okay. I thought we were just talking about the uh, out of cycle stuff and the calendar. I'm sorry. Just I didn't read Douglas County Commission. Can I? I'm going to try maybe to contribute some what clarity or path forward. I I'm not sure if we should approve the this timeline yet without having the discussion at large or at least hearing back from staff about the notion of splitting the funding and i don't want to lose track of shannon Howery's a point there and that it's um one that i think warrants some more discussion and determination of how we would determine a split um and then how will that impact this calendar that we're looking at and um so maybe some feedback from staff. I mean, I know it sounded like it was a simple request to approve this timeline and then go back to the other conversations around out of cycle. Out of cycle thing kind of feels separate because we need some policy and procedure that staff is gonna have to work on developing for us to, um, to assess and approve. But the issue of splitting into two different pools feels like it's tied to the approval of this calendar. I don't know. If other people agree or or understanding it differently than me. Okay. Um, Dana, you still have your hand up. Let's uh, give you an opportunity here. Sure. Um, kind of furthering what Shannon was just talking about. So we have the out of cycle thing, and I think this is why Edith was saying let's slow on the on the voting. We also heard I also heard splitting of the pools. So looking at voucher versus development or building activities. And then there's the supportive services piece. And I think we all agree that all three are needed, right? I mean, maybe, um, but we need we need units, we need vouchers, we need supportive services for some populations in order to be successful. Um, 
I know Edith in previous meetings has suggested really pushing the supportive services component um, with, with the city commission and saying this is critical to the mission of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board, find the funding. Um, if, if this group doesn't want to use that, wants to use the taxpayer money uh, strictly for units, then we have to have the other component. And I think Shannon Alvary is probably the best suited to speak to how that works, especially for populations that are difficult to house and populations that require a little extra effort on uh, vouchers and to be successful. All of it is part of affordable housing and all of it is critical to our mission. It's just where the funds come from and how we divide them up. Mr. Chairman. Uh, go ahead, Ron. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. I agree with everything Dana just said. And I support funding for vouchers and support funding for uh, the wraparound services. The, the discussion is only about where should those dollars come from? And I thought it was very illuminating when the question came up from the representatives from Kansas City who came in and did, by the way, an absolutely slam dunk great presentation about what supportive services are. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that both our city commission and county commission uh, have seen that also. And I would love to be able to schedule them with the Chamber of Commerce Board, because I think that would be an important audience for them to speak to. But, but when they were asked how their trust fund, how their housing trust fund dollars were spent, it was 100% on capital investments. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, so the next two slides after the timeline are a discussion on the funding priorities and eligible pro projects that the AHAB would like to entertain for funding. And so just in the interest of time, I'm wondering if we could make a decision about the timeline. It sounds like the AHAB is interested in having out of cycle. And so if there's agreement on that, then I can go and bring back some policy examples or some procedure examples next month. Um, in terms of splitting up the pots, the same timeline could work if you want, if you do want to have two separate applications, if they could both be running congruently on the same timeline, and that way the individuals have to recuse themselves for the supportive service. All right, this is Monty, so I'm chair. Um, okay, so I mean, as I look back at the timeline, it starts and started this week. So, um, you know, I think if we're going to have a, a funding, you know, notice of funding, and we're going to carry out an annual process that I'm thinking that we need to move forward with that. We should we should definitely sort out the other things we're talking about. But I think approving a timeline for regardless of how that process looks, I think we 
my opinion is that we can approve the timeline for that for the annual process and then start talking about these other issues. So at this point, I would enter if if someone is in disagreement with that, uh, please raise your hand and we'll okay. Okay, so I have at least one person that's in disagreement. So um, let's hear what you want to say, Shannon, and we'll talk about that. No, I agree with the timeline, and uh -huh. I think we can make the decision about do we have two processes or two parts of one process, mm -hmm. et cetera, all the other issues that we have to bring. Okay. So I'm not going to take roll because we don't. It doesn't require a vote. So we're going to move forward with the current timeline as outlined by Leah, and then we're going to take up these other issues. And that timeline will have to keep going as we're working out this other stuff. But that's going to have to be done pretty quickly if the no foe goes out, you know, in the next couple months or whatever. Uh, we're going to have to get that stuff worked out. So buckle your seatbelts on that. Okay, so let's move on to the priorities, which we were discussing already. Uh, so these were the 2023 funding priorities. Um, so we need to talk about whether, or we need to discuss if these are acceptable or if we would like to add or modify these priorities. So, um, This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing yeah. Administrator. Just to give a little bit more context, these are the priorities that are currently listed in the Notice of Funding Opportunity and also sort of embedded in that scoring rubric that the Advisory Board uses. And so um, whatever you all decide in terms of the priority commitments listed here, whether it's to add, modify, um, take something away, those will be a part of the upcoming NOFO and the matrix that you all use. It's Monty Sokup Chair. So I think, again, if we go down this path of two different uh, of two different or separated processes or applications, one for services, supportive services, or and then another one for hard assets, I'll call it for lack of a better term, then I think these are gonna look different for both of those sets of projects. So uh, they may have some things in common. So if we're gonna do that, I think we need to, uh, maybe split this into two, two separate, uh, two separate areas. And again, we could come up with, I mean, you know, it may take, it may take a subcommittee or something to work on what these, what these goals are. I'm not sure we're going to accomplish it in this format today. It may take a subset of, of people to work on a set of funding priorities for vouchers and or services and other set of priorities for assets. And I think when we come up with those priorities, then we can start to look at what our funding matrices look like to reflect those priorities. Um, 
thoughts on that? Do we have people that would be willing to volunteer to to take another, a second, you know, another meeting or two during the month to talk about what these priorities could look like for the separate things? Because I just I just don't see us accomplishing it here. This Maybe is the Affordable Housing Administrator. Yeah. Does, um, has there been agreement that the AHAB does want to do two separate processes? I haven't heard an agreement or a vote on that, so I just wanted to get that solidified before we develop a process. I don't think we have agreement on that. So but I think we have a desire to, to figure out how to. Of the question, please. The two processes, an annual cycle and a ad hoc cycle, are those the two processes we're asking about? Well, I think there needs to be, I think there needs to be two different set of criteria to be able to evaluate the different kinds of processes, whether there's two processes or one process. If something comes in and they're, they're, we're trying to compare apples and oranges, we maybe need two different set of criteria to evaluate the separate kinds of projects. Uh, Dana, you've got your hand up. Go ahead. It seems to me that there's two questions here about two different processes. One, mm -hmm. an out of cycle process, a calendar process. Right. And two, two is the process to evaluate units versus voucher supportive services. Maybe even voucher supportive services are separate. I don't know, but there's there's processes around the calendar and there's processes around what to fund. And I, I hear them being mixed up. And I think if we take one at a time, maybe we'll figure, figure sort this out, tease it out a little tighter. Mr. Chairman? Yeah, go ahead. And, and Ron Gage's chamber representative and what I'm hearing you suggest is that we should have some different priorities for maybe both the annual cycle and the ad hoc cycle, or you're talking about different no. priorities for the capital expenditure versus uh, vouchers and services and you know whatever else is in that second bucket. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yes, I, I think we need different. Yeah. I, evaluation I, I criteria for different types of requests, not it, when they come or it's apples and bananas. Okay, so uh, Edith has her hand up. I'm gonna let... go ahead, Edith. You're on mute, Edith. Yeah, as you know, I I don't uh, agree with that. I have uh, I think we struggle with it each time. How mm -hmm. to use the dollars? Um, valuing both and we make a decision about the projects we have before us, recognizing that all are important and we use the dollars before us at that particular moment with all of the projects we have, including services. And I think that dividing them up in advance uh, disadvantages us to make the best decision we have possible, uh, given the dollars that we have. So I would not support that. Okay, thank you, Edith. Christina, I think you have your hand up. I did, I did. This is Christina Gentry. Um, I, I, I think I'm 
trying to follow the conversation because as if you could put back the PowerPoint, um, what I'm seeing is the priorities. And if I'm hearing you correctly, Monty, you're asking us to choose two, or am I looking at a totally different slide and we're talking about something, okay, review current priority yeah. committee. Are you asking us, or are we still talking about the slide prior? Um, because if, if we are talking about this slide that I see, I think that there definitely needs to be some more um, conversation. I think there needs to be some more like palatable and 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 not discreet verbiage when it comes to strong commitment to racial equity and inclusion. And I think I heard you say um, if there will be some board members willing to take on a subcommittee to really dive into these, what I see are three current priority commitments. And maybe I hear you want or we, the group maybe wants to decide on there just being two of these three of the list from ABC. Um, I'm hearing, that's what I'm hearing. And so what I'm saying is uh, not to teach from the conversation that seems to be like kind of piling in on itself. But what I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to um, make it very simple for me and for, for me to process. Um, I'm saying I would be willing to review the current pop priority commitments with other members here who are wanting to take that time to do that um, because for me these three um, are, are I, there's there's more story there's more to be said about these three priority commitments um, and there's more to dive in on those and um, and it, in in the real I'm taking a real um, very good care of people's time uh, and making sure that I'm very careful of it and, and making it a priority as well, um, or lack thereof time to dive into these priority commitments. I feel that these are important um, and so important enough for us to have another conversation about. Um, and if that's something we're talking about, um, please help me understand because if we're talking about something else, then just omit what I just said, but um, these, three priority commitments are, are ones that I feel that we should dive deeper into as far as our funding priorities go. Okay, so I'm uh, just Monty Soak up chair. Oh, um, Shannon, go ahead. Shannon Ori, go ahead. <clears throat> Shannon Ori, uh, the Housing Authority. So just a good example is we're looking at these priorities. Two of these are very location specific. It, it lends to the capital side of where are you going to build these and how long will they remain affordable. Vouchers, they, they can't even, they're not in perpetuity. They, they can't even be evaluated under that one. And we have no idea where we'll find a landlord who will take them. And so it would be very difficult to even evaluate it under B. And, and I, I get E this point, and I'm not even, I'm really advocating for a separate matrix so that vouchers, I mean, I, I trust this board to make an allocation and, and uh, you know, as the, you look at what you have on the table in some years, vouchers might have a higher priority than other years, depending on what capital projects you have on there. But, but what I keep coming back to is you can't even evaluate those two things based on the same matrix. And so it doesn't have to be a completely separate process and you don't have to set aside particular funding or whatever, but it has to be evaluated on its own criteria because when you try to, I mean, again, a service cannot be evaluated on at least two of those. And, and 
then we end up in this very weird thing where, where then if we decide to fund it, we're not following our priorities, which sort of undermines our sort of idea of what we're putting out there to tell the community what we're doing. So as long as we have our own priorities for the voucher slash service side, and it has its own different matrix, I don't, I don't think we have to do two separate processes right. or, or set aside specific monies, but it does have to be evaluated based on the terms that, or the process, you know, the problem it's trying to solve. Right. Okay. So this is Monty Sokup chair. So <laughs> trying to keep us moving forward, I've, I've heard all of this and what I think we maybe one way to maybe try to get to the bottom of this is for us to put, come up with a list of priorities that regardless of a project, it it's a priority for this board. So for instance, you might have a priority that says, keep people housed in their current arrangement or something like that, where that could mean, you know, it might be a voucher that does that. It might be a home improvement project that does that, you know, a CDBG project, or it might be some other fund, but we, this list, all of the things that we want to accomplish. Those are the priorities of the group that list all of it. And then we can then decide if we need to split those or do something different with them. But if we get all of our priorities out on the table, we can then try to, you know, evaluate projects against that regardless of the process. So I think this is probably too narrow in what it looks like, uh, partly to Shannon's point and other people, uh, that it's too narrow because it doesn't in any way address a lot of the things that we're funding already, for instance, the accessibility uh, improvements, there's nothing here that talks about trying to impact the accessible, you know, people with accessibility issue population or, so maybe we just start looking at what priorities were, what we're trying to have an impact on. Is that a reasonable methodology for Mr. Chair, this is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. Yeah. I agree with that mentality or that thought process. I also think it would be helpful to go back to the goals we went through, like as we're right. looking at what the priorities should be, which is what I heard you just basically frame how you were framing that. Yeah. Because there are clearly some goals we're not on target to hit, but we, we know were and are, I think, continue to be important. So yeah. frame commitments from those more, more broadly and then right. be able to have the matrix set. Um, I'd also say to Shannon Alry's point, I, I understand needing that scoring piece to look at those voucher pieces. I do think it's important though that the discussion after we are able to review those and score them does happen as one big discussion altogether. I'm I'm not a I'm not in favor of having separate pools of money predetermined. Um, but to Shannon's point, to be able to look at those and to say, know what criteria I should be specifically looking for in those requests, so we can we can weigh them with each other um, or against each other, I do think would be helpful in the long run. Okay. Go ahead, Ron. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. I think the quandary that everyone recognizes here 
is that these priorities don't reflect the way we spent our money. And the place where we're spending our money that's not reflected in these priorities are in those wraparound sustain uh, those wraparound um, uh, services that are uh, accompanied to vouchers. Uh, I have no objections to funding vouchers out of the housing trust fund, uh, but the kinds of services that I heard the representatives from Kansas City describing for those wraparound services are really teaching people to be adults, going to the grocery store and informing someone, teaching someone how, how to buy groceries for a week, um, the importance of uh, cleanliness and hygiene and how to take care of your apartment or your house. Um, that so clearly falls outside what I think most people think of as our housing priorities. The only reason we got into funding supportive services is because we were informed, and I believe it 100%, the people that participate in the wraparound services have much greater success in staying, staying in their home staying in housing but my view of this my view of it is those things that need to be done to ensure that people are successful with their voucher are social services and they should be paid for through our social services resources those things that put people in the house whether it's a permanent affordable home or a voucher gets them in a, a rental someplace those are direct housing services and when when i voted for the sales tax uh earmark when it said housing services i thought we were talking about weatherization accessibility improvements that needed to be made to keep a place habitable for someone elderly to stay in the house and i think if you surveyed laurentians you'd find out that 95 out, five out of 100 think the same thing. The only folks that have any idea that it should be a broader, broader definition are the ones that are providing those services or receiving them, because it's just outside the scope of what people normally think of as if you talk about housing services. So the, the quandary I see is we've spent resources where money needed to be spent, but we've probably let the rest of the city off the hook by doing it from trust fund dollars instead of it being a general obligation expense someplace along the way. Um, and so and so now we find ourselves with this, oh, how do we compare the capital projects versus the vouchers and the supportive services? Well, if I spend more on capital projects, that means I'm telling somebody that's got a voucher right now, next year I'm not going to fund your voucher or I'm not going to fund your supportive services. Well, I don't want to be stuck in that position, you know? So I've been voting for this stuff up until last year when I said no, and I voted no. That's the first time in five years, four, four and a half years, that I've voted no on the final issue on a funding request. And it's because the things we're funding don't match our priorities. And I totally support going back to our goals and drawing our priorities from our housing goals, just as was suggested. Okay. So 
I guess what I, this Monty's so good chair, I guess what I'm going to suggest is that um, from our discussions today, we, we that uh, Leah and some others work on the redefining kind of our goals based on our discussion today. Then maybe at our next meeting, we can talk about these priorities and how those, once we have those in front of us, we can talk about that and then we can come back and talk about our funding priorities based on those goals with those goals in front of us. And I apologize, this isn't in person or we'd probably try to do that in person. Um, the next thing that comes up then is eligible projects, which I, maybe we can get through today on what kind of projects we're going to be willing to fund based on our goals. And I think hopefully everybody has in their mind well enough what we talked about in the goal section to talk about eligible types of projects. Uh, so Lee, if you could bring that up, that slide up. Chair, I just want to point out, um, I saw Rebecca put her hand up earlier and oh, I don't know I if that moment has passed, but Oh, just wanted to not miss that in case she still had a comment or question. Yeah, I, I'm sorry I missed that. Rebecca, did you want to speak? This is Rebecca with Tenants to Homeowners. Thank you, Shannon. I It, it really did pass, although it sounds like or the thought can segue into where we're moving, um, which again, I know several of you have suggested you do not want to split the pot but we keep circling around this. And so I'm wondering if we could do it in a way that is like we're prioritizing two thirds and I'm just picking numbers out of the air, but it seems like our discussion is usually about, we definitely wanna prioritize supply and building. Um, you know, Ron certainly said that, that we wanna also force supportive services. Although I don't know that we've actually spent that much money on supportive services by definition. I think the majority is on rental assistance and housing supports that I think fit more in our line, but we can, you know, pull those hairs later. I, I feel like there does need to be though, some suggestion of priority and maybe that's more easily stated because we don't want to say we don't want to have any sort of vouchers or supports. We want to say that the priority is on supply. So I think you've got to use a percentage. Like we have a priority of spending 70% of our allocation on supply, on building, on creating new affordable units that then leaves a certain amount that we absolutely acknowledge probably needs to be in supporting vouchers and other payment assistance to keep people housed. Um, and then we can make that where, and if we don't have enough allocate or applications to support that, then it moves to the other category or something. I mean, it doesn't have to be hard and fast and can never move. It just needs to give, I'm sorry, I disagree that having an open bucket is easier for everybody. It's not easier for those of us that have ideas and those of us that are trying to share the pot. 
with everybody else and making sure there is a good fair disbursement. I think we have every right to state what we need for a disbursement and what priorities we have, and then have some wiggle room and flexibility around that depending on the allocations we get. But I was just pointed out because last year or the last few years, it was disappointing that there weren't capital developments. I have like 200 units in the potential pipeline, but I don't ever ask for all the funds because I want to share the wealth and I'm learning. I should just ask for everything every year. That's how many projects I have potentially to do, but I, we don't do that. So the idea that we don't have enough capital projects is not really the case. It's a matter of, I need the information on what is this, this um, body want to prioritize on capital improvements and what do they want to prioritize on vouchers and supportive housing subsidies so that we all can make a good community plan in what we request and how we what outcomes we want in those categories and I, i'm sure shannon could say the same thing she could ask for vouchers for every dollar we have but we need some ability to kind of know how to ask for that and make sure we're meeting the gut you know the goals of and I, and I can't agree more we should have our priorities match our goals um but that we're meeting those as we continue to discuss this so i would love to see a very loose you know our priority is 70 percent of our funds are capital you know capital acquisitions and capital development and 30 percent or however we want to say that again i'm I, I just think that a number then helps people know what our goals are and what they should apply for because the reality is our time is also limited and so you know i can let you know i have two million and things i could spend money on and buy more affordable units but or build more affordable units but i I'm not going to do that for a allocation if if you're only going to look at 250,000 for for those those deals. So I mean just that information is helpful and, and when we're all trying to put together projects, we have hundreds of projects available and it's a matter of subsidy. So I hope that helps from that perspective. Uh, go ahead, Ron. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Mr. Chairman, it does not make me feel great about our work knowing that Rebecca's got lots of projects available that she could bring to us that we could fund that we haven't funded. Uh, Monty Sokup, Chair, duly noted. And Monty, can I jump re real fair to say, Ron, some of that was adjusting to COVID. So again, a lot of those development projects were put on a hold tight until we can get to that, but we've got to keep people from becoming homeless now. So that was another reality that has changed in our last two years that I don't think was any of our faults. And I, I don't want to say that, you know, don't want to blame it on this process. That was another wrench in the whole uh, lining up development yeah. projects. But we've all seen how poorly we've done on all of the measurements associated with creating new affordable housing. 
I think the global pandemic does have to be considered when we look at those measurements. Yeah, Monty Sokup Chair. Um, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think to, uh, to Edith's point of not having, I'm gonna argue the counterpoint maybe, and maybe it's easier for people that are submitting projects to know, but the counterpoint is like when we went through this COVID, we intentionally shifted more funds to services and vouchers because that's where the the urgent need was. Mm -hmm. And if we had locked ourselves in to say 20% can be spent on this or whatever, we would have to, again, we would not meet, we, we would not have been able to do more than what we wanted to do. So I, I'm a little leery to lock us into something and maybe it can be done loose enough that it can be implied, uh, but I hate to get us into a numbers game. So um, that's just my my stance on that. I'm wondering if a prioritized list, if we come up with our what our funding priorities are, if we put those in a prioritized list, does that help people submitting projects understand where that is, where that lies, or? You know, or is historical data enough? I mean, because we've historically spent, you know, a certain amount, you know, on services and vouchers or rental assistance. Um, I guess I'm more, I guess I, I'm leaning more towards a fair way to evaluate projects against like projects, as opposed to uh, setting up a situation where we say we're going to do a certain percentage here or there, how we're going to spend our money. I want to, I want to spend the money on the best projects that come through the door, regardless of what they are. So that's kind of where I am. And I would probably lobby for certain open to other. <laughs> okay. Well, Johnny, I agree, Rebecca with Tennis Homeowners, I agree with you. I, I really think we're saying the same thing and catch mm -hmm. it. Not, yeah, like that list of priorities that is specific to capital improvements and supply building and services, and that there's some sense of priority that is not a lock number, but a priority of we want most of the funding to to do this and if there's a global pandemic for for example we have the right to move it or change okay. our our priority but that i mean it seems like part of what we're dealing with is our lack of units and supply building so i don't know why we can't just say that's one of our priorities but we yeah. keep saying we don't want to say we're going to put that much money into that priority. Okay, let's not give it a dollar amount. Let's just say that is our priority. Okay, that's Monty Sokup Chair. Okay, I think, uh, so I want to go back to the eligible projects because maybe we can agree on what kind of projects we want to entertain, at least limit it down that way, and then we can go back next month and talk about like I said we'll put the we'll put the goals back together kind of based on our conversation today then we can talk about these priorities and coming up with those priorities so that they can be inserted into the NOFA um, so if we have this can we agree we want to accept projects or applications that apply to acquisition rehabilitation 
um, I would say rental assistance instead of vouchers, but maybe someone would could if there's a difference, someone could correct me on that. Uh, housing chair, yeah. um, Edith had her hand up again a little while oh. ago. So, gosh, I'm terrible at that. I'm working off my laptop that's about that's okay. 10 inches wide and everybody's teeny. That's okay. It was, I was just going to ask out of frustration, quite frankly. <laughs> Isn't there anyone terribly unhappy with the um, awards we've made? Does anybody feel like that we made really bad decisions? I mean, what what is this about? Why are we doing all of this? And we look back, do we feel like we've made some really bad decisions in the decision making that we've done? This is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. I'll I mean, <clears throat> I hear that question, Edith. I I don't well, I think you get different answers from a few different folks here. It seems like there has been some expression of maybe a little bit of discontentment with how we have allocated in the past specifically to services. But I think what I'm hearing more from um, from Rebecca and Shannon, who've spoken to it at least, and I would be interested to hear from um, other members who are also applicants and so, um, or have been have submitted projects is we keep talking about these sort of two different um, pathways of the dollars more or less it's a little bit more nuanced than that but essentially two different pathways we speak about them differently a lot and so I, I think it makes sense to me that um, different criteria and uh, a way of speaking about the priorities and um, so that we can better evaluate when we're doing those scoring matrix matrix um, makes sense to me. And I mean, I'm still a relatively new board member, so I don't have a ton of experience, um, especially outside the pandemic where things have, that's been an overriding um, pressure, I suppose, and element and applications, but um, to use the criteria that we have towards both types of projects was a little mucky. It didn't totally make sense all the time. And I, we've voiced lots of people, in my opinion, have voiced that in different ways throughout our meetings, not just today, but in previous meetings and during those discussions. And so I, it does feel like there's some sort of clearer defining, whether we assess a certain amount or different pools of money, I think, you know, there's, I like the idea of more flexibility. Um, but some some differences in the language about how we evaluate services and assistance um, versus de development or acquisition, they're pretty different things ultimately. We need them both and we need them to work together, but it's hard to assess them with the same thing. So I think I'm just hearing that from folks who are who are doing either development and or services um, and a number of members I think have brought up questions in past discussions that lend to it that we many of us are already thinking of these two sort of pathways differently and some of us have strong opinions that um, that they're both needed or maybe um, we shouldn't have as many services prioritized. I don't, it just feels like we talk about it enough that I think it's warranted that um, we have some more structure 
around how we talk about those two things because muddling them together kind of keeps us circularly in this conversation in my experience so far. Yeah, Shannon, thank you. It's been a, I think it's been a fundamental philosophical issue that we have wrestled with, certainly from the very time I've been on this board. And we keep going back to it over and over and over again. So, so that's why Thanks. Monty soak up chair. I'm uh, having looked at some other, been involved in some research on other cities that most other cities that have trust funds have two or three different criteria associated with the different kinds of projects that come in. Um, so certainly we could uh, look at some other, what other, some other cities do and, and but certainly separating uh, rental assistance and supportive services from real asset development are two that are clearly separated and need to be evaluated on different criteria. But then you still end up with the decision of which do you fund. In our case, there's never going to be enough funding. So you're still, even if you pick out the best of A and the best of B, you still get to decide ultimately which one or which ones you're going to fund. So it doesn't necessarily solve the problem other than it gives you a better way to evaluate like projects. And that's what I kind of am hoping we would get to so we can say these are the one, two, three best capital projects and these are the one, two, three best supportive and rental assistant projects. And then we can decide what to fund. But we still is going to come back to us to decide what to fund. So we're not going to get around that situation. So go ahead, Dana. Edith, I've been on this committee longer than you have, and we've constantly had this conversation. <laughs> and and so I think another way to look at it, if I can reframe it in this manner, is the criticality of the conversation and how it's important. And you can't just tease out one piece of this complicated housing issue and say, well, that's something else. We'll get the funding elsewhere. The, the, the study that I believe Ron was referring to earlier, the Corporation of Supportive Housing, both words are in their title of their company. And they reported that Lawrence and Douglas County needs 312 additional units for permanent supportive housing. That, that is the those that are the most difficult to be housed. And the way that that is successful is by both those components, somewhere to live and the support to make it happen. So I don't think, I think this conversation though, very frustrating for all of us, I'm sure, is so critical to the success of this group in understanding the complexity of affordable housing, especially for certain populations. Well put, Dana, thank you. All right, I'm gonna bring us back to this eligible projects. Maybe we can agree on this, I don't know. So are we in agreement that acquisition, rehabilitation, vouchers, supportive services. Um, I'm going to take those four. Are we in agreement that those are things that could be, could and should potentially be funded given that they come forward with a good project? Okay, Ron. Um, are housing support services here referring to what? I would assume that that is wraparound services to make people successful in their 
whatever housing situation they end up in. Then what is E referring to? Well, I was gonna, I was I separated that because it's a little more complicated. So that's that's a project to me. That's a project that actually develops a hard asset and has supportive services that go with that development. So, for instance, the thing that uh, Burt Nash is doing, where they built the supportive housing, you know, that was a had a, had a hard asset component as well as the service that went with it. Now they. But I don't, I don't believe we, I don't believe that Ahab funded any of the supportive services. No, I'm just saying that's an example of a project that would be that kind of project. I'm not saying we funded them. Okay. Um, I, if, if housing support services are the wraparound services that are accompanying vouchers, I do not support including wraparound services in our list of eligible projects. Okay. This is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission, and, and yeah. I just want to say that I do support that that remain it's a fundamental part of um, maintaining uh, access. So if we cut off an avenue of access for people to remain housed, we exasperate the problem that we're trying to chip away at. Um, and we need a diversity of tactics, quite literally, and to only build and only acquire without acknowledging that some folks who need access to that housing also need some services, which are being supported by, in a variety of ways from a variety of places in our community, Ahab being one piece of that. And I do think that it's appropriate in the context of what we're doing, because otherwise we're ignoring um, part of the foundation that we need to help maintain folks in their housing and maintain that housing in an affordable way. Okay. Thank you, Shannon. I think to just to follow up on that thought is if, if a project comes in and it's developing affordable housing, it doesn't necessarily mean that the supportive services will be funded through the trust fund. It may just mean that the ask may, I mean, depending on the project, the ask may just be for funds to develop the, the asset itself and a supportive services can be provided by something else. So I don't think it hurts that it's in there. Is there anything else? Can anybody think of any project? agree with that? that? Come on, Monty. It, people that see this, applicants that see this are going to say housing support services. You say right in the application, you're, you're funding support services. Okay, I don't disagree that I mean, we should I, fund I, it. I mean, that you may. Any, any applicant that's not already in attendance at the meeting who reads this list of eligible projects is going to believe is going to think that wraparound services in are probably included in D. And so they're going to they're going to come here looking for funding. And you know, I totally agree these services need to be funded. I totally agree. But but you're asking the housing trust fund not to provide access because we provide access by funding a voucher. Now you're asking me, okay, some of you are going to need your handheld in order to be successful and stay in the and stay in the unit. So here's the person that's going to remind you to get your rent in on time. And oh, by the way, 
make you a more stable individual or family so that you know you're you're worth spending the voucher on and i just don't see that this is where the trust fund dollars need to be spent not when we're performing so poorly on on our all of our goals for capex for creating new units or i'd rather spend more money on on the vouchers give access to more money and go to more people you know address the issue I, I still don't understand why we need more money for vouchers when we seem to have a problem with getting landlords to accept the darn things but i'm going to accept that that's just a flexible thing so we scale up more vouchers you know i i i, I we need support of social services funding whether it's from the city or the county or the state the folks in Kansas City talked about how they are redirecting uh, social service funds to pay for their supportive services. Okay, and okay, Ron. So that's certainly I respect your opinion. I'm I'm not going to say that that you know represents everybody on this board. So I'm uh, because I disagree with some of the things you say personally, but yeah. I respect your opinion on that, and we'll take that into consideration. Um, I certainly doesn't preclude us also from if there are projects that we don't that you don't like that you vote against them and we we make that evaluation at the criteria level of per project. So that's in there as well. So this is Rebecca with tenants to homeowners. Can I ask you, was there a specific reason we put the development and supportive service? It seems like were we yeah. just trying to define another combination of that because i, I yeah. do think we might just want to put development of affordable housing and have support us and then you can combine and mix right maybe un unbeen unmeaning there seems to be a, a focus on supportive services where i actually think most of us agree there needs to be a support on building supply across the spectrum right so maybe on E, it just reads development of affordable housing, period. We, we're covering the supportive services, like you said, it could be mixed and matched. Maybe we tried to go too far last time. These are from the last, you know, we had this discussion of the last yeah. time we were. No, and I, and I so agree with, so I support you, Monty, and that housing support services need to be in there. So maybe that clarifies those two different pieces and then a combination of all. So I agree with all of these, especially if we take out, because I think development of affordable housing, you could look at that and say, oh, but it has to be supportive service housing only. Um, right, right. And it doesn't need to be. It could just be housing. Yep. Assets. But otherwise, I think those five things, I, I can't think of anything else I'd want to include in those five concepts. Does, does anyone else have something they want to add? Mr. Chair, this is Sarah Waters. I, is that idea here that in the application, they would check the boxes that apply? Is that what we're looking at here? Just to, I just wanted that clarification. I agree completely with what, how Rebecca framed that as well, to just make development of affordable point E. But I would like to see potentially that in the application, they check which ones this funding would go toward so that if they were planning to do supportive services as part of even a rehabilitation project, 
or some, you know, they would check both of those boxes. Both of those boxes. So like an all that apply. And then, then we'd also gather data because I do think data is important to show to whoever else that we had these three that were for supported services only and we chose as a board not to fund them or their, their repeat requests annually. And when we don't fund them because of X criteria, because they don't fit with the original intent of the trust or some of those other aspects. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, just a couple of points. Um, one, yes, to Sarah's point, there there was a checkbox on the application last year, and it sounds like that's helpful. And we'll keep the you know checkbox. And then additionally, on the application, they have to state their outcome and outputs that they're working towards with their project. So it's clearly delineated whether you know it's a voucher or um, an acquisition, et cetera. Um, it sounds to me like there is disagreement regarding the housing support services being on the current eligible pro projects list. And so I'm wondering if that may need to go to a vote. Um, and then um, I did just want to state just for the good of the order that um, the types of housing, supportive housing is needed for some populations, for example, with severe and persistent mental illness or um, you know, intellectual disabilities or other people with um, disabilities who um, require supportive services to live independently. Um, it's, you know, um, those individuals did not choose. They are not in a deficit. Um, that is a population in our community that also deserves safe and affordable housing. Um, but that is a population that requires support services in order to stay housed. Um, otherwise, um, uh, we're leaving a segment of our community out that was noted on the need um, in the assessment of housing needs that was referenced. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation, Leah. I think, you know, again, I'm going to come back to this is a application by application situation you know i i guess i i fall under the the realm of if we're developing supportive housing um the trust fund it probably is not the place for the annual funding of the necessary services to keep those people there because it's a it's a annual award you know so you know i would i would you know, if I saw a project, I would give it a much higher marks if it was supportive service housing, but there was a different funding source for the operate the ongoing operation. I don't see this fund as an ongoing operation kind of fund. That's just me personally. So I see that there is a need for a little bit of differentiation there. Uh, and again, it's gonna we're not gonna solve everything in what's an eligible project here. We're only gonna solve what kind of projects we hope to see come to the table. I think that's what we're trying to get out here. We're not gonna solve who gets funded and what kinds of things necessarily. So I guess I'm in, I would uh, love to entertain a motion to accept eligible projects as I am going to read here, acquisition, rehabilitation, um, rental assistance, housing support services and development of affordable housing. So moved. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Okay, so I have a motion. Do I have a second? Second, and we'll Rebecca. 
Okay, so I have a motion on the table to have those five things in that just checkbox realm. Any discussion? Have we beaten that one to death? Okay, I'm going to call a roll. We're going to vote that at least we'll have that list knocked out today. We're going to come back. So, Thomas Howe. Aye, I vote yes. Tom Allen. So approved. Shannon Reed. Yes. Rebecca Buford. Yes. Sarah Waters. Yes. Christina Gentry. I approve. Erica Zimmerman. Yes. Dana Ortiz. Yes. Shannon Aury. Yes. One day I'm going to get your last name right, Shannon. I'm working on it. <laughs> I struggle with that. <laughs> Ron Gages. Yes. Edith Guffey. Yes. Uh, Trent Santee. Yes. Monty Soka. Yes. Motion passes 12-0. Okay. So we have our eligible kinds of projects. Um, again, we're going to come back to the priorities after we've assembled, revised the goals before we're going to do that before our next meeting. We'll get those revised and we'll come back to those. After we have those revised goals, then I think we can work on the criteria uh, and different uh, matrix, because I know that's going to be a whole discussion of its own. Um, so the next thing on our agenda is determining meeting schedule and structure. So, um, Leah, were you going to set this up or go out? You want me to do that? Um, I am happy to just give some framing for this. Um, but okay. before we move on, I wanted to note that um, we have about 14 minutes left in the meeting. And so I'm wondering if we want to just power through or. Um, yes. <laughs> Well, I think we should use the next 14 minutes to get where we can. Okay. Um, so Monty actually set it up nicely earlier um, when asking if folks would be interested in forming a subcommittee to work on specific goals or priorities of the AHAB. Um, so uh, we wanted to have a discussion about the ongoing AHAB meeting calendar and sort of the format of the AHAB meetings. Um, in front of you is the annual business calendar. So if we stick with the NOFO timeline that the advisory board agreed on last time, these would be the months in which we need the full advisory board to conduct business. Um, and then aside from that, you know, it's education and ongoing discussions, et cetera. Um, what the question up for discussion is, is if the AHAB would be interested in, in um, meeting only when there's business needed for the full board, when there's a quorum needed, and on the other months, um, if, and ongoing, to have subcommittees to work on these priorities. Um, other city advisory boards are moving to meeting less frequently and utilizing um, subcommittees or committee work to actually 
you know, do the ongoing to to work towards achieving the goals. And I think that we've seen that, you know, we have a lot of um, goals and priorities that we want to achieve and that perhaps this format isn't the most conductive to advancing those goals and priorities. Um, and that perhaps we would get further in our work if there were subcommittees that worked on distinct tasks and then used the all AHAB meetings to report back on those items. Um, so I'm just going to advance the slide and then turn it back over to Monty to facilitate discussion around that. Yeah, thank you, Leah. Monty Soka, Chair. So I, uh, today is probably a great example. Um, it would have been probably nice to come to this committee today to, and have an outline of uh, some of this stuff outlined and have had some work done on it prior to this group meeting. And then we could have had more of a, you know, critiquing session and tweaking session as opposed to uh, trying to figure out what some of the bigger picture things are and have stuff to work from. So uh, Lee and I kind of talked about this and it's just, it's an, op it's a, opportunity, I guess, it, I mean, we could consider doing that or we can continue doing what we're doing and meeting monthly and trying to hash through these things in, you know, a Zoom meeting uh, together like this, which um, I'll tell you as chair, it's it's difficult, <laughs> but happy to do it. Um, so I like, I guess I want to get people's feedback on whether they think, you know, if we had specific things to work on, like, like I think we're taking our spending, our priorities. What if a subcommittee came back with a list of this, the priorities, you know, for this group to review and kind of critique and move around as opposed to this group as an entire group trying to come up with what those are. So like people's thoughts on that, if they would like to go that direction, or if, if you want to stay kind of where we, what, the way we're doing it, and we'll just, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Thomas. So I'd love to see this group work more efficiently. I think that a lot of our, uh, the reason that we're not making the progress we'd like to make is because we have these involved meetings and we hash over a lot of the same stuff and we don't move forward. I loved Edith's comment earlier that we should be noisier, that we should have the ability to not just do this during our meetings, but get the work done and then figure out how to spread that word. So I would be strongly in favor of doing task forces and work groups to do those, you know, to, to do the machination because they're, I mean, most of the people on this, on this call are really, really passionate and really well-versed in what it is we want to do. And I'd love to see us maximize our efficiency. I think that we should try it for a period of time, maybe six months, maybe four months, who knows what that is. But I, I would love to see if we can become a more efficient body because people say to me, well, how are you, you know, how's that going along? Are you accomplishing stuff? And it's, you know, I have to say, well, we're, we're doing some things, but it sure would be great if we, because it's an enormous problem that we face. And it would be great if we could feel like we were making better progress. So I would be in support of that. Okay, thanks, Thomas. I have three people that have their hands up, so I'm just going to do it in the order that you've got your hand up. So Dana. 
Thank you, Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence. I I concur with what Thomas just said, and the business calendar. I understand it's for the purposes of organizing the funding and everything, but that is a real good representation of the narrow scope that we end up having with our current meeting structure. That it's all focused towards the um, funding of projects once a year, and we need to do so much more. We need, and so committee work focused on advocacy and pushing out this, solving the multiple problems that come with affordable housing. It's not a one size fits all. So let's divide our meetings and get more done. Okay, thank you, Dana. Christina Gentry. Yes, thank you, Monty's Christina Gentry. Um, I would also be in support of creating subcommittees. I think that I said this earlier that I just volunteered for one of the subcommittees that introduces or talks about um, our um, some of our goals and some of our, our priorities. So I, I think I just volunteer for that if we create that subcommittee. I would also ask that we have a level of transparency where each of these subcommittees could meet on a Zoom. Um, I think that the public would be very interested in some of the discussions that take place in the subcommittees as well. And being that this is a very pervasive subject, I think that our public would also like to um, take note of what we're discussing in these subcommittees. I will ask that our frequency remains be monthly as our large group, because as this issue is very pervasive. It is a constant understanding of the ebb and flow of the changing and the understanding of the, um, the constructs of time as they present themselves and how we need to be adaptive to our community. So I'm in complete agreement of having subcommittees, but I would like to keep some of the frequency that we have for our monthly meetings as well, for the large group uh, that is. Okay. Thank you, Christina. Erica? Erica Zimmerman, Lawrence Habitat. I don't have much to add than what has already been um, really well said. I'm in full agreement that I feel like we could further the work that we're doing with the committees. Okay. Um, it sounds like there's somewhat of a consensus that we should have some, we can have some committees. I see Thomas has his hand up. That's why I am generally in support of Christina's movement that we continue our meeting together. I think maybe one of our first task force it says, you know, what what does our uh, what is our meeting structure? Do we continue the monthly meeting? So maybe around that would be a good task force to start with. Yeah. Thank you, Thomas Monty Sokup Chair. I'm thinking that for the moment maybe we stay with the monthly and as the committee work gets underway, we can then reevaluate when, if and when we can uh, eliminate a few meetings a year or whatever uh, to, and still get our business done. But I'm, my hope is that as we have this committee work that the work in our regular meetings will go faster and more productive uh, and more efficient. So um, with that, I'm wondering, uh, I guess we need to think a little bit about what committees we want to uh, want to uh, have to start uh, diving into some of this work. And I'm not sure we're going to accomplish that today, but I would ask that each of you think about what areas, you know, as we think about priorities, what subgroups of research work or committee work could occur 
uh, and be much more efficient uh, moving forward. You know, maybe that's an advocacy, you know, maybe there's an advocacy group and figuring out how we get the word out, how we promote what we're doing, how we get people involved. I mean, that could be the work of a group. Um, Monty, this is Shannon. Yeah, go ahead, Shannon. Authority. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that I would like to have, and maybe it's in this community outreach and engagement, but I'm currently the convener on the health plan for safe and affordable housing. Danny, I don't know if Danny's still with us, but she regularly participated. But I mean, that is a that is another group, and and it would be great if it wasn't. Um, if we had other members who this isn't actually their job also, because what, I mean, uh, I think maybe I participate in about four or five housing committees or groups or something. Um, and one, I would also like to add a regular agenda item of an update of the other community efforts that are happening because sometimes I hear this board's frustration in well I didn't even know that was going on or why hasn't anyone told us about that initiative um, and right now they're they have the, the health assessment out where we're going to start setting the priorities for the community health plan for the next five years. And does this board know about it? Probably not. Have we engaged at all in, in utilizing this board to help us get those surveys out to all the people they might touch because that's really important also. And so I think there's so there is so much going on and those of us who this is our job, we do it all day, every day, multiple times a week but I don't think it's getting back to this larger group. And if we really are the policy recommendation body for this issue, one, we need to know what's going on in the community and we need to know what's going on at the city uh, and or the county that touches these issues. And it seems like we're like- The last to know. Yeah, we're the last to know. And, and if you're sitting on these, I totally hear your frustration of you come and you do this and you're trying to set policy and support it, and but you're not being given the proper information. Okay. This is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Uh, I think that's a great suggestion, Shannon. Um, and hope that it would both promote even more ideas um, from this group about other opportunities for relationships or outreach um, and help us all feel um, on the same page because I think there's some varied levels of um, knowledge or awareness about those things based on the other committees and groups. Um, and then, so I think that's a great idea and would love to see that as a regular uh, monthly meeting agenda item. As far as the subcommittees, I think that um, to me, the two that stand out as the biggest needs um, and what we are spending all our time talking about is uh, policy specific. And I saw that on the list that was pulled up in a moment ago, but policy recommendations um, and being really explicit both in land development code and maybe maybe elsewhere too, um, that we can make those recommendations to the city commission so that we are not only recommending funding um, 
opportunities, but policy is a big piece of that. And then the other is maybe something specific to the private public partnership building. Um, and to go back to Erica's comments towards the beginning of the meeting, um, that really talking about tangible um, ways in which we are building those and doing outreach and creating more awareness um, and seeing more creative, robust ideas come our way in future years. Thank, thank you, Shannon. It's Monty Soka, Chair. I think just to add to that in that public partnership, um, and maybe this crosses both actually on the how we get more developable property, you know, to help, I guess, to push forward affordable housing, push forward housing altogether. So um, with that, we're kind of on our time here at 231. And I want to be as respectful as we can of that. We've had a long day and we've done a lot. So uh, unless someone has an objection, I'm going to adjourn the meeting. And uh, Leah informed me that I don't actually have, we don't have to vote on that actually. I've been putting you through an extra vote all this time. So my bad, but um, you can, we're adjourned and you can signify your approval by leaving. <laughs> Thank you your work today.